Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the So Video Games podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything between. If we are playing it, we will be talking about it. Today we are recording on July 18th, 2019. My name is Corey Motley. I am a podcast producer and a co-host of the So Video Games podcast. I'm also an occasional writer at GameCritics.com. And last but not least, I am 50% of this show. Joining me, as always, is my co-host and partner in crime, Brad Galloway. He is the editor of Game Critics. How are you, Brad? I am doing good, doing good. I'm glad to be here recording on this lovely afternoon, and I'm uh, ready to talk about some games. Oh, my God. Guess what? I'm ready to talk about some games, too. Oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> Well, so um, weird. It's so fucking weird <laughs> that you want to talk about games when I want to talk about games. How did this happen? Could you imagine if we co-hosted this show and neither of us wanted to talk about games? I think that has happened a few times, actually. <laughs> Guilty as charged. I think if we're doing, if we're 140 episodes deep, there's definitely been at least one week where we haven't wanted to talk about games, but... Nevertheless, we persevere. Uh, I am hosting this week, so I'll give you the floor first. Do you have any housekeeping stuff? I don't have any, but do you have anything special? I've got nothing, man. I'm good on this end. Okay. I just do. I do want to mention real quick. I really, I just said, oh, I don't have anything, but um, I actually do. Um, just as a heads up, an early heads up to people listening, the last game we talk about today, I'm going to come back to System Shock 2. I talked a little bit about it last week when I was a few hours in. This week I finished it, so I will probably inevitably be spoiling some stuff in it. I realize the game is like 20 years old, so like the statute of limitations is probably up for spoilers on it, but I will be probably spoiling some stuff. I will give a spoiler warning later during the show, so if you haven't played it... Um, I was going to say something snarky, like, first of all, where have you been? But joke's on me, because I just played it for the first time last week, so um, <laughs> I'm right there with everybody who hasn't played it yet. But just as a heads up, um, if you're just dying for to not have this 20-year-old game spoiled for you, just heads up for later, but that'll be coming later in the show. So um, let's do, uh, Brad, I'll give you the floor first. Um, what do you want to talk about first? All right, thank you, sir. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about Etherborn. Uh, which is a, it's not a Kickstarter, but it's a FIG game. Um, I don't know if you remember, but FIG, F-I-G, is a new platform that was created by some people. I want to say it was some of the um, Tim Schafer and his oh, crew yeah, and some other I folks. Yeah, I think it was some of those folks. I don't know exactly all who's in it, but it's kind of like kickstarter except that the people who are running it are going to be really vetting the games closely so they're only going to approve things that have a very high chance of being a good game at the end of it and they're going to weed out the people that don't know what they're doing apparently like it's supposed to be this kind of like better more reliable you know vetted by industry insiders sort of a kick but basically just kickstarter but more selective um and one of the first projects to come out of fig I don't know if it's the first, but it may be one of the first. It's called Etherborn, uh, and it's what I'm talking about right now. It is a third-person puzzle game where you play a little uh, human being whose skin is transparent. So you can see, you can see like the outline of the body, but all you really can see is like the brain and the spinal cord and the nerves throughout the body, which is kind of weird. Uh, it's pretty cool looking, like it's very striking visually. Uh, you play this character and you go into these worlds which are really abstract. Uh, and the hook to the game is that 
gravity changes depending on where your character is. So as you start the game, your character is walking just, you know, as, as any character does in a game. But then there are these ramps all over the place. And if you walk on a ramp that goes from the floor to the wall, then all of a sudden the wall becomes your floor. And then you are walking on the wall. And then if you go uh, on a ramp that goes from that wall to the ceiling, then all of a sudden the ceiling becomes your floor and the wall is just goes back to being a wall. And so you can walk around all of these abstract landscapes or I don't know if it's even proper to call them landscapes, but they're like these really big levels that are kind of free floating in space and you kind of walk on them and you can go, you know, on the top and on the side and underneath and all around. And so you change gravity every time you hit a ramp. And so it's kind of mind bending in that way. And the ultimate goal is that you need to collect these little orbs, which are scattered all about the levels. So like sometimes you'll see an orb and you're like, oh, there's one I got to get, but it's on the ceiling. So I got to find a ramp that goes from the floor to the wall to the ceiling. And once I'm up there, then I can grab that and bring that back around. And once you get enough orbs, they kind of function as keys. You place them in these little holes and then it'll like either change the way the level looks like the, the landscape will move. Pieces will fly in from off screen and like change the topography of the land, or maybe it'll like a gate will open or something like that. So ultimately you're, you're trying to navigate these levels, find these little orb keys and place them all where they need to go to get to the next level. Art style is great. I love the art style. It's very warm, very pastel, uh, lots of smooth edges. Everything is really like soothing to look at, but also really appealing. Like it's not boring. And it doesn't want to, it doesn't make me want to go to sleep, but it's very just chill and calm. <laughs> I, I dig the visuals a lot. And I think the main character is pretty cool looking. And I've, I've always liked games that kind of play with gravity or that kind of like do like, you know, the MC Escher thing. Are you familiar with MC Escher? Uh, yeah. Like the stairs, the, the Penrose steps. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. The, like the, uh, the stairs that go into nowhere and like these like impossible shapes where, a door will go into a floor and the floor goes back into a door, but there's really no way that could ever happen in real life. Like it only exists in a drawing, that sort of mm. abstract things. Folks, if you don't know MC Escher, E-S-C-H-E-R, uh, please go Google that person. And you, I'm sure you've probably seen his artwork. It's very, very famous, um, but maybe people sometimes don't know his name. Uh, but that, that, that's what this game reminds me of a lot. It's kind of like an MC Escher drawing um brought to life in a video game where you're kind of walking up and down and around and doing all these weird things. So um, full disclosure, I did back this on fig myself with my own money. Um, I saw a trailer for it a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago. And I'm like, Oh man, this looks like my shit. I totally want to play this. I'm going to kick in like 10 or 15 bucks or whatever the minimum was to get a switch code. And maybe it's 15, 20 bucks. I don't remember. Uh, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I totally am in for this. I want this to happen. Uh, so, uh, I did back this myself, but also full disclosure, double full disclosure, double disclosure. Uh, they did send us also a review code. So I did pay oh, my own dang. money to get a code, but then they also sent me one as well. So just heads up to everybody. So y'all know where I'm coming from. Uh, my full review of this game just went up at Game Critics today. You can read my comments in full if you'd like. It's live on the site right now. Uh, but I will tell you, this game is awful. It's totally oh, no, awful. Yeah, Brad. it's terrible. I know, I know. I know. I couldn't believe it. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why it's awful. This game was so close to being awesome, and yet it is not awesome, and I'll tell you why not. Uh, the problem, the biggest problem, far and away the biggest problem this has, is that you do not have the ability to move the camera wherever you want. And so if you can imagine briefly, I know this might be a little bit difficult, but if you're on like 
a piece of land which has all sorts of twists and turns and ups and downs and bridges and hollows and all sorts of weird things. Every time you walk on something, the camera reorients and locks itself into place, kind of like the way that um, a Resident Evil old school camera worked. And so you're only seeing a small part of the thing at a time. You can back the camera up a little bit. You can turn it a little bit to the left and right, but you cannot swing the camera around to get a look at the whole structure. And that's exactly what you need because it's easy to get disoriented because floors become ceiling, ceiling becomes floor, like the walls become the, the, the ceiling. Like it's like you're constantly getting flipped around. And if you could simply move the camera around wherever you wanted, you could be like, oh, okay, well, I'm actually on this side and I need to go over here. And okay, okay, I get this and this makes sense now. And I can figure out a path from A to B to C, but you can't. So you're only seeing part of it at any one time. And because of that, and because of the way the levels are designed and because of how the levels sometimes move, it is really hard to keep your bearings. I constantly was getting lost and like retracing my steps over and over and over, thinking I was going to a new place. And then I'd get there and I'd be like, fuck, this is the place I just left. Why am I back here? And trying to figure out where it is you need to go is really hard. But it's not like this is the way the puzzle is supposed to be hard. It's just hard because you can't see anything, which is really a really artificial and awful um, way to make a game difficult. Um, and to go along with that, Something that complicates this is that when you find these orbs that act as keys and you put them in the holes where they go and the level changes, that's fine. But sometimes you have to like put them in, do something and then take the key back out and then put it in a different place. And so if you're already a little bit confused about where you are, when you're moving the landscape around, you have to have a very good sense in your head about what you just did, because maybe you'll have to undo it later on, but after you've done something. And so if you can't keep that picture in your head, which I had a very hard time doing. Um, it's very easy to screw yourself because you might be trying to get someplace where no path exists because the key isn't in the right place at the right time. Or maybe you put the key there, but then you didn't realize what changed. And so you're not doing the thing. And so you just end up going over and over and over and over the same places. And I found it to be very frustrating, really, really frustrating. I wanted to quit this game a few times just out of frustration. And it's not a long game. There's only five levels. And I honestly, I feel like if you were able to move the camera, you'd probably finish this game in like two hours and be done with it. Uh, but because I could not see where I was going and I kept getting confused, it, it was probably closer to six or eight hours of just wandering around and feeling frustrated and just feeling just like really unhappy with it. So I love the art. I love the concept. Uh, I love, I mean, just what they were trying to do, but they just really did not go there. The camera just fucking kills it like so hard, just makes it so unfriendly. And so needlessly frustrating. I'll also say, um, I would not have said that a story would would make this game sink or swim. Um, I, I wasn't basing success of this game on the story. But the story is just like hogwash. It's a bunch of like metaphysical stuff that doesn't make any sense. And I kept hoping that it was going to come together at the end. And it would be like some kind of neat twist or something. But it's not. It's just like a bunch of like we are all universal energy. And if you, you know, like it's that kind of fucking mumbo jumbo shit. And like, they just, they keep going around about like the thoughts or your words and words or actions and actions are who we are. And that defines who we are and who we are is energy. And I'm like, what does that even mean? None of this means anything. It doesn't go anywhere. Like, and you get to the end and I still didn't understand what the point of the story was. So unsatisfying story gameplay, which looks amazing in screenshots, but is really not fun to play. And I'm just really, really disappointed. I thought this one was going to be a winner for sure. And in fact, I even put my own money on it. I, I literally put hard cash down because I was so confident this thing was going to be good. 
And I just, oh my God, I could not wait to be done with it. I was like so, so frustrated. And in fact, a couple of uh, other reviewers that I am friends with, like behind the scenes were DMing me and they're like, are you playing Aetherborn? I'm like, yeah, are you? They're like, yeah, fuck this game. I'm like, I know, oh, right? No. And, like we were like shit talking it behind the scenes because everybody was frustrated with it. And uh, yeah, so that reflects in the Metacritic score. It's not doing too well right now, despite the beautiful screenshots. So that's Aetherborn. I'm glad to be done with it. And I honestly, I, I got done with it like two weeks ago, but it was under embargo this whole time. And so I've had to like hold on to this like for like at least a couple of weeks. And I'm very glad to finally be able to talk about this and just get it off my plate. Man, there I am always on. Anytime you bring a game to the show, it's always like, a roller coaster of emotions because you like sometimes when you start talking about a game like i i think i know where you're gonna go with it and like whenever you were talking about this at first i was like oh man he's gonna say that he hated it and then you were like talking about it in a way that was incredibly complimentary and i was like okay maybe he's not like maybe this is gonna be a good one and then you're like oh it fucking sucks Got to keep you on your toes, my friend. Got to keep you on your toes. <laughs> yes, every time. While you were talking about it, I was actually, I just pulled um, the Switch off my coffee table and was watching the trailer for it in the eShop. And it does look really mesmerizing. It kind of looks like a weird sort of cross between like, almost like Intelligence Cube and like Bound in a weird way, like in a third yeah, person. Yeah, totally. Um, that's, a, that's a good, that's a good mashup for sure. Um, it looks uh, very beautiful. So, and, and whenever you were first, because this is something I always do also, is whenever you start talking about a game, I always immediately try to like decipher if I think I would like it or not, because you and I both know that you and I generally bring games to the show that like the other person more often than not, I would say would probably not be interested in, but you play a wider variety of genres than I do. So I'm always trying to like pinpoint if I think what you're talking about, like might be able to get me in in any way. And when you were talking about it, I was like, oh, like it sounds puzzle heavy. So maybe not. And then you were talking about the art design and sort of like the way that the gravity and the levels move. And I was like, OK, maybe. And then I watched the trailer as you were talking and I was like, hey, this actually looks like kind of up my alley. But I doubt it. I probably never will try this game after what you just said. So that's really unfortunate. I mean, do you think um, we talk about this a lot on the show? Do you think down the line? this could be patched in a way where it could be better later if they gave you like full camera control or something to that nature. Oh yeah, dude. If they, if they patched in full camera control, like the ability to rotate the levels and get a good sense of where you are. I, w- I mean, that's like at least like plus two points on my review. Like it would, it would boost it up so hard because that's really all that's holding it back is like, just, I mean, not being able to see in a video game. I mean, think about that for a second <laughs> video game can't see it's a very basic problem so if they fix that which i think it's possible to fix it i don't see why the camera has to be glued to where it is there's no reason it needs to be there i mean granted i'm not a game developer or anything like that but just you know based on my knowledge of video games i don't see anything here that tells me this camera needs to be here so i think they could do it i hope they do patch it i think that would make the game way more playable way more enjoyable and if it was fixed in that sense yeah i probably would recommend it to people but as it stands i cannot recommend it to anybody because it's too frustrating um but if you want i do have the code that they sent me for my backer rewards i mean i can give it to you you can give it a try if you want i don't think you'll like it (laughs) but if you want to give it a try i have an extra one uh i feel like maybe i i'll i'll save it for somebody maybe who would rather who thinks this would be the up their alley maybe Maybe if it hits a really, really strong sale on the PS4 or Switch, I might pick it up, but um, maybe I'll, I'll hold off for right now, but that's very kind of you to offer me the code. 
No problem. Let's move on. But I will say really quickly, I checked really, uh, really briefly the Metacritic and pretty much every review is mentioning that the camera is fucked up. So I oh, would not no. be surprised, would not be surprised if they did put out a camera patch, because if that's your number one problem and literally everybody agrees, that's your number one problem. I mean, number one, why didn't you fucking fix it like a while ago? <laughs> but number two, I wouldn't be surprised if the publisher is like, hey, man, you guys got to get this shit out of control because sales are going to tank. Everybody thinks your game's fucked up. You got to go fix it. So I, I bet you within a couple months we'll see a full camera patch. But uh, fingers crossed. That would be great if it did. But who knows? Uh, anyway, enough about Etherborn. Let's move on uh, to fulfilling our pledge of uh, new stuff, old stuff, anything <laughs> between. Bringing up some old stuff here. Watchdogs. Are we talking about the first Watchdogs? <laughs> Affirmative. We were talking about the first Watchdogs. Oh, man. I hate that game <laughs> so bad. But you're playing it right now, Corey. I am surprised by this. I am Number too. One. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, you are too. Okay. <laughs> You used to wake up and Patrick sneak this into your PS4 and caught you by surprise with it? What happened? Well, okay, so there's a slightly, um, I don't even know if I want to call this a funny story, but whenever I talked about a few weeks ago about how I went to San Francisco for the first time and went to Pride there and everything, and I had talked um, at the time during our banter on that show about how I kept relating things from San Francisco back to Watch Dogs 2, because Watch Dogs 2 is one that's in San Francisco. The first one is in Chicago. And I came home and I had remembered that before we had left for San Francisco, I had seen the watchdogs double pack on sale on the PSN. And I thought to myself like, well, you know, um, I've played both of them. I played watchdogs on the Xbox one. Cause I didn't have a PlayStation four at the time. I rented watchdogs two from Gamefly and beat the whole game, actually platinumed the game, uh, to be frank on trophies. Um, because I just played the hell out of it. Um, and then sent it back to Gamefly and I had been remembering all the stuff about San Francisco and thought, well, maybe if it's cheap enough, I'll pick up the double pack. I'll revisit San Francisco in Watch Dogs 2 and just kind of, you know, just have some fun. And so that's exactly what I did. The uh, double pack, I can't remember what it was on sale for, but it was, I bought the gold edition double pack of both games. So I now have Watch Dogs 1 and Watch Dogs 2. I have all of the DLC and all of the stuff for both of them uh, more or less and i had never played the dlc for watchdogs 2 so now i actually do have some more fun stuff to play in watchdogs 2 but watchdogs 1 so every once in a while i do this on the show where and i've talked about it and i think you've talked about it before too where i play a game and i remember it one way and after years pass i think to myself was it really the way that I remembered it? And then I want to go back and try it again just to see, like, with a fresh perspective, is it different than how I thought it was? Is it the exact same how I thought it was? Um, how have my tastes now maybe changed to where I can maybe think of this game in a different way? And so I decided to do that with Watch Dogs 1. Like I said, I had originally beaten the whole thing on Xbox One. I actually... I think I reviewed it on Game Critics. I might have written a second opinion for it on Game Critics at the time. Um, pretty sure I have written information out there about the first Watch Dogs whenever I played it on Game Critics. And I went back and I started playing it. And I remembered the first time I played it, I didn't really like it. I didn't think it was horrible, but I didn't think it was anything close to as good as I wanted it to be. Um, but I thought, okay, I'll go back and try it again. Maybe I'll let's let loose and I'll shoot people a lot instead of punching them and knocking them out. You know, maybe I'll try to make it easier for myself and play it a little bit of a different way. Cause it does offer a little bit of like variance in how you complete the missions. And for those who don't know, um, 
the first Watch Dogs, you play the story. You play as a guy named Aiden Pierce. He is a hacker. Um, he lives in Chicago. The city of Chicago was recreated by Ubisoft very faithfully to uh, Chicago itself, um, which is impressive. And um, he gets mixed up in this bank heist hacking thing at the beginning of the game. It goes tits up. Um, later on down the road, this like hacker gang um, is chasing him and his sister and her two kids on the streets and they basically his niece his sister's daughter ends up dying in a car accident and this is like i wouldn't call this a spoiler because it happens in the first like 30 minutes of the game it's kind of what sets off everything in the game um and so the whole story is kind of like a aiden going on this sort of like vengeance quest to like find the people who track down the people who killed his niece and you know work his way up through the um hierarchy of hackers and all this bullshit and it's a it's an open world game i'm sure everybody knows that open world driving cars driving motorcycles um hacking stuff a little bit of parkour chasing side missions you know everything you think of when you think of an open world game this is it um and so i went back to to play it and I probably played it for about two or three hours on PlayStation 4 last week. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's exactly the way I remember it. It's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> not, it's just really cheesy. Um, it's not any, it's not fun. Like, it's very, like, uh, Batman-y and, like, uh, oh, I'm a disgruntled hacker dude and I, everything I say I talk like this and I'm gonna go hack stuff and I'm going to punch you and hack your phone. And it's just like, it's so stupid. And, and the thing that kills me about this game is that I actually went back right before we started recording. I went back and I watched this game came out in 2014. I went back and I watched the E3 press conference where it was uh, revealed in 2012, which I, I mean, hats off to Ubisoft because this game, they launched a new IP. They launched a, it's now a franchise. I mean, the third one is coming out, I think at the end of this year. And um, and they kept it completely under wraps. It didn't leak. It didn't, nobody knew about it. And whenever they unveiled it at E3, they unveiled a full gameplay demo. There was a guy on stage with the controller. He was playing through a mission of the game. It wasn't like a big CGI trailer. It wasn't, you know, any of that cyberpunk bullshit where it's sword arms and shit. It was like full on in game guys on the stage playing it, which to be honest was incredibly impressive. And I went back and watched that, and I remembered at the time when the game came out, people were complaining because the final product of the game was not, like, up to what the trailer looked like, which, I mean, surprise, surprise, the trailer looks better than the game. Of course it does. Um, but because the gameplay demo at E3 was a gameplay demo, people were kind of surprised that the final product didn't really uh, match up to that. And so I went back and I watched that before I uh, before we recorded, and, I mean, that that gameplay demo that they showed at E3 to this day is still like super impressive. It looks really slick. It's beautiful. There's like this incredible, he uses a, one of those like fold out batons in the game. He does this amazing takedown on this dude in the back of a club and the, with the baton. And it just like looks so intense, but the game itself just never lived up to the way that that gameplay demo looked. And I, I mean, I can kind of understand why everybody was so mad whenever it came out because it doesn't look that good. It doesn't play that interestingly. It doesn't use the different mission and game modes sort of intertwined in a way like they did in the demo on stage. And so, I mean, I'm not trying to say that like Ubisoft like pulled a fast one on everybody because I mean, it's kind of like at the end of the day, the 
you know, an E3 press conference and your marketing department is supposed to sell the game to you. I don't think this is like a No Man's Sky level of, you know, like false advertising or anything, but it just was a little bit of a letdown because that gameplay demo is still really impressive. But this game is just not that interesting. Like the whole premise of having your phone and being able to hack stuff and you can look through cameras and, you know, you can hack people's bank accounts to get their money. Like it's all really, really interesting stuff. But in classic Ubisoft form, much like with Assassin's Creed, the first game feels more like a proof of concept. And then the second game is really like kind of where it took off because I I like Watch Dogs 2 a lot more than Watch Dogs 1. I don't think Watch Dogs 2 is amazing because it has a lot of the same trappings of Watch Dogs 1 where... You know, same gameplay stuff, same open world, same hacking mechanics, a lot of similar stuff. But the thing I like about Watch Dogs 2 is that it's fun. Like, the characters you're playing as, they're really fun. It has a black male lead, and it's not, like, you know, a silly Batman revenge story. Like, he's just a cool hacker dude, like, living his life, and he's trying to go after the man, you know, and hack, the, like, a Google-type company in San Francisco. So it's kind of, like, relevant in a way, um, you know, in that way. Whereas the first one like has had so much promise of cool ideas and it's just like this really boring, just like revenge story. And it's about like his sister's daughter. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to say that like family vengeance isn't a strong story, but like, I feel like it would have been stronger if it had been like one of his family members that got killed, like his wife, even though it would have been just like Max Payne, if it would have been that way or like his daughter. And then it would have been just like, I don't know, every other game. So maybe it wouldn't have been any better, but just like your niece dying doesn't really seem that important to me. And he's just like such a boring character. Like they could not have written Aiden Pierce any more boring way. Like he's supposed to be this like quiet, like grizzled bad guy hacker, but he's just so boring and uninteresting and he's not funny and he's not clever and he has no lightheartedness about him. He's just like this boring ass white dude that wears this ridiculous coat. And it's just like, I don't know. I I was hoping that when I went back to play it, I would like it a little bit more and I'd be able to get down with it a little bit more. But I played it for about two or three hours the other night and I was just like, yeah, this is exactly what I remember it being. It's just boring. It's super like paint by the numbers, get a mission on your phone, drive across town, hack, you know, a thing, fight some dudes, rinse, repeat for 30 hours and then it's the end of the game. So unfortunately, I realize this is not the hottest take in the world because this game has been out for years, but I was hoping... I might be able to go back and have a little change of heart on it, but unfortunately, I uh, don't think that's going to happen. I think I might start either a new game in Watch Dogs 2 or play the DLC in Watch Dogs 2, and hopefully that'll be a little bit better. Um, don't know if I'll bring that to the show or not, because it's also a little bit old. But yeah, Watch Dogs 1, exactly the way I remembered it. Still pretty boring, still an interesting story. Mechanics are not as fleshed out as I want them to be, and... I mean, I'm still looking forward to Legion, even though Legion looks like it's kind of going to go back to the more like serious tone of the first game and i would prefer it to be a little bit more lighthearted. but you know hopefully it'll still be good but yeah first one not great at all not a surprise i remember playing this when it came out and being really 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 just allergic to it i thought it was terrible um i thought the mechanics were bad i thought the mission design was bad i didn't even play very much of it i barely scratched the surface of it and I just wanted to just eject like ASAP. I could not stand <laughs> playing it. Um, so that does not surprise me at all. Uh, while you were talking, I took the liberty of going back to your Game Critics review of oh, this, boy. Uh, this game. <laughs> Have you read that since you started playing the game? Or I haven't. Yet? I thought about it, but I didn't go back and look at it, no. Well, I pulled it up. You gave the game a 6 out of 10. How are you feeling about that? 
Uh, that's yeah. I stand. I stand by that. All right. So you did actually a third opinion. Believe it. Oh or not. my that god! Whoa. This is something that we have a lot of writers <laughs> who are very eager to cover. So at Game Critics, we usually have a main opinion, and then sometimes people get excited, they have a second opinion. It's got to be something big to have a third opinion. So this one had a third, and I'm just going to pull a couple quotes out of the piece here. <laughs> Says. This is you writing, of course. Uh, As such, Watch Dogs not only fails to execute on its big hook, but isn't able to deliver a decent campaign either. Honestly, the story is just awful. (laughs) Feels like it was written by a 15-year-old whose only computer knowledge comes from watching sci-fi movies with no real effort to add sophistication or nuance. And Aiden himself, he's as dull as they come. (laughs) Just a middle-aged white hacker who uses one tone of voice for the entire game designed by a homogenous committee that thinks it knows what a cool hero is they don't oh man i is there any better feeling because a lot of people talk about when they write things and then they go back and read it years later how they're like embarrassed or they think their writing was terrible back then is there anything better than writing something and revisiting it several years later and thinking yes that is exactly what i meant and i said it exactly the way i wanted to and i could not be happier that it was put out into the world that way that is a good feeling that is a very good feeling uh i've had that feeling sometimes although sometimes i also get the feeling of people uh bringing up a quote for me from five or ten years ago and being like that's exactly the opposite of what you're saying right now (laughs) so that is a less good feeling, but yes, the feeling of being validated several years after the fact is a very good feeling. So you were right then, you were right now, you're getting validation from me. I think Watch Dogs is a pretty miserable game. Uh, but like you, I am looking forward to number three. It does look interesting, and I'm willing to give Ubisoft the benefit of the doubt on this one for no good reason, because I don't think they deserve it, but I'm going <laughs> to give it to them anyway, because we play all the Ubisoft games despite them all being really boring. So we will be there to talk about Watch Dogs 3 when the time comes i have nothing else did you want to any final thoughts or should we move on we can move on i am i could not be happier to move on from this game all right excellent let me talk a little bit about the world next door played it on switch it is a very small game uh coming from i want to say rose city games and i think this was their first game and i believe they are publishing with viz media which if memory serves they were a manga and anime company back in the day i'm wondering if this is the same viz it must be because their logo looks the same as i remember it but i have not heard from them in many years i mean to be fair i kind of dropped out of the anime world so i I wouldn't have had a lot of exposure to them but i was a little surprised to see that they were still around and i apparently publishing games now uh so this game the world next door started as a game jam project and then i guess apparently the people really liked it a lot They somehow hooked up with Viz and said, hey, this is what we jammed out. Would you be interested in making this a game? And Viz is like, hell yeah. (laughs) And here we are. It became a full-fledged game, and I played it on the Switch. And I got to say, I'm going to take the surprise right out of this. I thought it was quite good. I thought this was a very, very lovely game. Um, It is a 2D... It's not a top-down, but it's kind of like a vaguely 2D isometric sort of a thing. Uh, where you play as a girl, her name is June, and she is from Earth. Uh, in this particular world, Earth is one dimension, and it shares, um, I don't know, I guess a common wall with another dimension called Emrys. And so Earth is like the science world, Emrys is like the magic world, and they kind of rub up against each other. And in this particular game, 
it's like a special event where people from Earth can go to Emrys for like a couple of days. Like it's like a once every hundred years sort of a thing or something like that. So they have a lottery to pick which Earthlings can get to go to Emrys for a couple of days. June is one of the winners and she goes. Now, the interesting thing about this in, in the way they've set this world up is that the worlds can communicate with each other all the time, even though you cannot visit all the time. And so when June gets there, she already knows the people because they've been texting and they've been like sending messages back and forth across the dimensional rift. I don't know exactly how that works, but that's that's the kind of setup where she has friends on Emrys, the Emrin people have friends on Earth and they chat. And then this is like them getting together after this rare opportunity to kind of cross over the dimensional world and just kind of party for a couple days. So the first thing that strikes anybody about this game and the first thing that struck me is the art is just fucking gorgeous on this game. It's beautiful. Uh, I believe it's done by a guy or, or a person. Excuse me. I don't know this guy. Could be a woman. Could be anybody. Uh, named Lord Gris or, you know, Green, G-R-I-S. That word seems to come <laughs> up often again. on this podcast. I know, right? I can't get away from it. Uh, so that person, whoever they are, wow, super skilled. I love their art style. It is super attractive and perfect and beautiful. And I'm so jealous of their skills. Because uh, I was a fair illustrator back in the day. I haven't practiced in many years. And looking at their designs, I'm like, that shit is on point. It is so good. So I love the art style. The other thing I like about this game is that it's very small and compact, and yet the developers know this, and they are very smart to not overstep their reach, right? So, like, the, the entire world of The World Next Door, if you're talking about how many game screens it is, it's like, if you don't count the dungeons, it's probably, like, five screens? It's a very small world, and yet it's all that you need. Like, you don't need an open world. You don't need tons and tons of woods to walk through. You don't need all this stuff. It's like one place where the characters gather to talk. There's a couple places where you can talk to NPCs. There's like a little place where you get on a little vehicle. And like, that's all there is. Like, that's literally all there is. That's like the entire world. And, but it just, it really maximizes that. You go back and forth these locations many times and it just makes sense that you don't need to go all over the place for this. And it feels good. Uh, combat is also really interesting and fresh. Also very scaled down and small, but in a good way. Uh, how this game works um, is that you take June into a dungeon and the dungeon has a floor and the floors are in different shapes. It's not just like one big square flat floor. Like sometimes they're shaped like with little holes in the floor or sometimes they're, they're shaped like little catwalks or something. But every bit of the floor is divided up into squares and each square has a symbol on it. And so June has to activate these symbols in such a way as to connect them up. And then once they are connected up, she can activate that space on the floor and it casts a spell. So I know that's kind of crazy. To, maybe this is hard to imagine, but imagine going into like like on a dance floor and every every inch of it is divided up into squares. You have to look for like three of the same, you know, fire spell or three of the same heal spell. You can pick them up and move them. And once enough of them are touching, that's when you can activate them. So that's the basis of how it works. But at the same time, there are monsters in these levels as well. And so they're always like running towards you. So you got to like dodge them. And sometimes some will activate your spell before you do, or sometimes some will um, cancel out some of the floor squares so you can't use them. So it's interesting that you've got like this combat engine, but it's kind of like a puzzle engine and there's not really any direct physical combat. It's not about combos or punching or swords or anything like it's about manipulating the squares on the floor in order to do damage to your opponent, which I thought was really cool, really fresh, really neat. Um, I also want to give props to the developer because... They were smart enough to realize that it does get tricky at times 
and a couple of the levels were like a lot harder than the rest, especially if you're still kind of learning the system. So they did give you an option to where you could turn off all damage to June. So she would be basically invincible, but she would still have to make the combos, but she wouldn't be able to die, which I thought was great. I didn't need it myself, but I did consider turning it on a couple times, but I didn't do it. But I'm glad that the option was there. And if you're there just for the story, then you can turn that on and just make your way through all the puzzles. You'll never die. It might take you a little while to get those enemies dead, but you yourself will never have to reset, which I think is great. It's great to have the option. Fucking great to have the option. Um, and the story is also really great. I think the writing is really smart. It's a bunch of teenage teenagers from the magic world who are all kind of like half monster talking to June, who's like a normal Earth teenager. And I thought the dialogue was really well written. It had enough actual real world teenager dialogue to feel uh, like it made sense. It wasn't super cheesy. It wasn't over the top. And I thought that it was approachable and that the characters felt like real people. Like it, it felt like stuff that people would actually say. And very often when they would be talking about something, the, the response that I wanted to choose would often come up. Like I'd be like, oh, uh, this person's mad at this person. I totally want to say this. And then when the dialogue options would pop up, sure enough, there's a thing that I want to say. So I always felt like they took good care of that. Uh, and overall, it was really well done. I mean, it's a small scale project. I think I finished the whole thing in a couple of hours, but that was good. Like they didn't pad it out with extra stuff. Uh, the writing was good. The art's good. The combat's good. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea. The characters were likable. I mean, everything about it was really, really good. It ends a little bit abruptly. Uh, and some people said that they felt like it was like only the beginning of a, like a part one of a series, which I could easily see. And if another one came out, I would totally buy the next one and play it again or play the next one. But, um, I mean, for what it is, small, measured, controlled i think the developers were very smart with their resources they they made the best use of what they had they plotted it really well there's not very much fat on its bones you just get through it and just have a good time i think it's great i think it's really great and i think it's a perfect fit for the switch felt very comfortable very easy to play it felt like it was designed for the switch honestly and um as the switch is something that you need to do, put down and pick up because it's a portable there's a nice little hint system you forget what you're doing you pop up the, the menu it tells you exactly what you need to be doing which is great in case you forget because you get busy. I mean, this is like a win all the way around, dude. Like, it's just, there's nothing bad about it. I enjoyed it from start to finish, and I would certainly recommend it to anybody who wants, like, a little bit of a story-based game or somebody who likes, I don't know, like, that kind of, like, urban fantasy kind of stuff or dimension-hopping kind of stuff, teen drama kind of stuff. I mean, I just thought it was great all the way through. I, I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. It sounds a little bit, a tiny bit, like you are describing... Crypt of the Necrodancer whenever you're describing this game. That's the only thing I can think of when you're talking about it. I mean, the combat, a little bit. I mean, there's no beat to follow, but it's kind of <laughs> the same idea of, like, managing your squares as you're walking around. I mean, thankfully, there's no time, there's no tempo, there's nothing like that. But it's, it's basically like a game of keep away where you're trying to keep away from the monsters and dodging the fireballs they're throwing at you and at the same time trying to, like, you know, oh, there's a... There's a square that I need over here. I got to get over here. But wait, there's monsters that way. So I got to dodge. got to run around them. And, you know, just you're constantly playing keep away and trying not to die while at the same time trying to, like, hit these squares on the floor that you need to get to in order to, like, you know, make your spells happen. It's really neat. I don't know that I've ever played anything exactly like it. And I think it's a really cool, fresh idea. Um, and like I said, there's a few levels that are much harder than the rest. But I got through them okay with a little bit of practice. Uh, there's a little bit of comboing you can do, and there's a little bit of higher level strategy that isn't immediately apparent, but you can kind of figure that out as you keep playing. But overall, I mean, this game is basically like the total package. I mean, it's got looks, it's got writing, it's got gameplay, and it, it's wonderful on the Switch. So 
I would certainly recommend it. It came out earlier this year, and I don't know anybody except for me and maybe one other person that played it. I don't know anybody that's, like, reviewed it. It just seemed like it popped up. It's this really high-quality, super cool game, and, like, literally nobody played it, and I don't know that anybody knows about it. (laughs) So I don't know what happened to make it fall into a black hole. Maybe it came out at the same time as something else, but... I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. And if you want a short game that uh, satisfies in just a couple of bites, this is it. Well, I would say that you're definitely doing your due diligence of uh, the usual um, sort of game critics slash so video games MO of bringing a great game that's a little indie gem that nobody has heard of to the show. And then maybe we'll be getting some fan mail soon of people who play it. And they're like, wow, I never would have heard of this game if you hadn't talked about it. And I love it because that seems to happen pretty often. Well, that makes me feel good when that happens, and I hope that people do pay some attention to this game because it's just so well done. It's so smart and so properly designed. I mean, I just I couldn't have been more pleased with it, and I really hope that it gets a bigger audience. It would be a shame for this to just disappear into the morass of the eShop. I mean, it deserves to be <laughs> at the top. And I, I mean, honestly, dude, like the characters are so cute. I'm imagining that there must be some people doing, you know, porn of these characters on on some fan page somewhere. Or they're gonna somebody's gonna cosplay as some of these characters. I mean, it would be impossible not to. They seem perfectly made for it. So, folks, get out there, start drawing your hentai, start making your cosplay costumes. This is your game. This is what this is designed <laughs> for. Go do it. Go get it. Excellent. Well, I'm good. I I had a feeling we might um, have been having one of those shows that we have every once in a while where we both come on here and talk about a bunch of games we didn't like. But I'm glad that you enjoyed that. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about it before we move on? No, nothing else, nothing else. Um, But I am very curious to move on, and let's talk again about System Shock 2. I was very surprised that you liked it when we talked about it last week. I'm even more surprised that you finished it, so I need to know (laughs) everything about this game now. Um, So I guess this is the proper place to put up a spoiler warning for this 20-plus-year-old game. Um, If anybody out there is planning to play System Shock 2, which I guess you might because it's kind of a... It's kind of a landmark title. It's kind of a famous title. It's probably on a lot of people's lists as like must play PC titles. So it's not inconceivable that a lot of new people would come to play this game. So um, spoiler warning, this is the last game of this uh, main show episode. We're going to, I mean, I'm not going to talk about it, but Corey's going to talk about it. He's going to just spoil everything. I may ask him spoilery questions. And uh, I guess if you don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead and the timestamps are in the show notes. So, Corey, there is a spoiler warning. That's a pretty fair one, I think. Let's talk about System Shock 2. Last week, you gave us a brief rundown, so I don't think we need to repeat that. But I guess let's start with your overall impressions and how you think this fits with the other games that are like it. Well, um, yeah, so I talked last week a little bit about how it was pretty evident that, because, you know, when people talk about, like, Bioshock or Bioshock Infinite or even Prey or some games of of those of that ilk, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's just, like, System Shock, or it's kind of a spiritual successor to System Shock, and, um, and it's really true. Like, I had talked about that a little bit last week, and because a lot of the sort of things that you see in those modern games, like especially Bioshock. I mean, the big one is Bioshock because um, Ken Levine wrote both uh, System Shock 2 and Bioshock. I think he either directed or was the creative director for Bioshock. And he was a designer on System Shock, but I don't think he uh, directed the game or was like the creative director or anything. But you can definitely feel a lot of the influence there um, because System Shock just has a lot of similar elements. I mean, it's a first-person game. The space station 
it, the entire thing is not open to you from the beginning, but as you progress through it, you can basically go back. There's like a, a main central elevator that you activate at a certain point. Um, that's kind of the first like big uh, objective in the game. And admittedly, it takes like probably a few hours to get to the point where you unlock the, the elevator and then you kind of take it to each floor and you have like kind of a big sort of objective on every floor. But you can also go back to the floor you were on at any point and sort of re-explore different areas of the space station. So very similar to like Bioshock where, yeah, you're in Rapture, but some of the areas are locked off at first. But once you get to any area, you can go back to any area you've already been in. Like, I don't think the game like really cuts you off from anything once you get past something. Um, so it has very similar very similar kind of uh, mission setup in that way. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call it open world, but it's about as open world as a Bioshock or even like Prey that came out in 2017, where you have most of the station open, you can go anywhere, but there's definitely like a main objective at any point you're supposed to be doing. Um, and I, I'm actually, like I said last week, I'm really shocked that I liked this game as much as I did. Um, cause I've tried to play the original Deus Ex a few times and it's really hard for me to get into. I've tried to play the original Half-Life and that's also, it's just too difficult for me to get into, but I do want to go back and try it at some point. Um, now that I've been better, gotten a lot better at mouse and keyboard controls, but, um, but System Shock 2, I mean, I really like... I played the hell out of it last week. Like, I mean, part of it is because um, I, I didn't have a car, so I couldn't do anything. So I was stranded at home all weekend. But um, I would just, it's one of those games, much like with uh, Prey from 2017, where I would sit down at the computer and I would just play it for hours. And like, that's not something I usually do with computer games because sitting in a computer and playing a game feels not as good as like sitting back on a couch and playing on a console, you know, with the controller, like you're sitting at your computer desk in a computer chair. But there's just something about this game that just entranced me. And I played it, I could just sit down and play it for like four or five hours at a time and, you know, maybe take a little break to eat and then come right back to it. Um, but it just, it feels so like modern in a way for how old it is. And it's also easy enough for me to get on board with. Cause like I talked about last week, um, you know, it has different kinds of weapons. It has a wrench, like a melee weapon you can use, which I use that most of the time. Um, you have like health kits and stuff, but it also has the Vita Chambers, just like in Bioshock, or I should say Bioshock has them just like in System Shock, where if you die, um, you have to unlock the Vita Chamber on every deck that you go on, so you don't automatically revive. Um, but once you find it and turn it on, if you die, you basically just re-materialize uh, inside of it on that deck. Um, the caveat is that your health, I mean, depending on how you kit yourself out, your health can be like, you know, 75 hit points, 100 or whatever. Um, the caveat is that every time you respawn in one of those, your hit points are at 25. So you do still have to heal if you want to like explore or maybe you're not very good. Um, so it's kind of a nice balance where it doesn't respawn you with full health. So you have to do a little bit of, you know, take care of yourself a little bit, but it's also not as harsh as having to save and reload or maybe you forgot to save and you have to checkpoint like an hour ago after you die or something. So I really like that element of it. Um, Let me ask it, you a question real quick, dude, because yeah, please. I just don't have any kind of a sense of what you're doing. Like, can, like <laughs> just describe like, like what is even the fucking point of this game? I mean, are you just like running through hallways, whacking stuff? I mean, what is the point of it? What are you doing? Like, what is the, what is the feeling of playing this game. Why are you playing this game? I want something more visceral because I'm just, I mean, I hear you talking about it and I've heard other people talk about it and I get it, 
I guess. But I mean, <laughs> just people saying it's like Bioshock like isn't enough. Like why why would anybody bother with this game these days or what are you getting out of it? Well, I think I like it because it it has it gives me a lot of agency as a player and that's something that I really like. I mean, I don't have to have that with every game I play, but it gives me a similar agency that like Bioshock or Prey does where I mean, you always have an objective, but it's first person you have different weapons you can equip. I mean, very, I mean, literally very similar to Bioshock. Like you have the wrench or you have guns you can switch to. If you choose to have psionic powers, you can use the psionic powers. Um, but it's paced in a way where it's actually a little bit more like survival horror slanted than I expected it to be, almost in the sense that Prey was. Because I mean, Bioshock kind of has that tendency too, where like it's a little bit creepy. You have the creepy splicers around. It definitely sets up some moments where, you know, not scripted moments, but moments where like, you know, you're walking down a hallway and there's a splicer's shadow on the wall. And then as you get closer, it like darts away and you're wondering where it is. Like System Shock has a lot of very similar elements to that because something like Half-Life or Bioshock Infinite is just like a run and gun, you know, shooting everything, jumping around. And there's definitely merit to those kind of games. I like those games. But System Shock 2, um, you know, it's it's a lot more geared. It's sort of like creeping around. Like the enemies are similar to Splicers. They're these sort of like weird um, human-alien hybrids um, that attack you. Some of them have... Uh, melee weapons they attack you with some of them have shotguns they shoot you with uh, later on there's like grenade type enemies and when they see you they like throw grenades at you which that sounds annoying but it's not as annoying as it sounds and uh, there's also cybernetic enemies like there's these sort of like they actually look kind of like big daddies they're like but they're fully robotic they're these basically just like big kind of hulking robot sentries that patrol some areas so you have to sort of um kind of i mean i wouldn't advise just like running and gunning through this game like there's not enough ammo to run and gun so you have to be more careful about sort of your movements around the station and um and just like using sort of like your ammo and your powers wisely um but it's not hard because like i used the wrench most of the time and most enemies die within a couple hits of the wrench or i mean like the standard enemies die with a couple hits of the wrench and those are the most um common enemies but obviously, like, a giant sort of, like, uh, like big daddy-type robot, you know, you have to hit it, like, several times with the tank. Or you have different ammo types. Like, if you use, um, like, uh, armor-piercing ammo in your pistol, then, you know, it takes their health down faster if it's a robot or something like that. So you just have to be really strategic about the way you play it. But it also still has a little bit of a horror slant to it because there's, like, people talking to you over your headset. And there's, like, this weird... I'm like Shodan is like the AI woman who's sort of like the main villain of the game. And she's like kind of talking to you at a certain point in the game. There's a big reveal where she comes through and then you finally learn who she is. And she just says like creepy stuff to you. And there's also this weird, like sort of like alien entity that's also talking to you over your headset. And it like, it's kind of like this creepy, like, man and woman speaking over each other kind of voice and they're kind of like whispering and it's kind of weird and there's just like uh, i didn't expect this game to be sort of like as creepy and as kind of horror slanted as it is but i do appreciate that because i like games like that um you know even maybe perhaps reminds me a tiny bit of something like um alien isolation you know it's not that scary and there's not one sort of hulking monster that's hunting you over the you know the station but it has a similar vibe where you're just kind of creeping around but at a certain point you get equipped well enough to where 
you can, I mean, I wouldn't say run and gun, but you can, you know, move a little faster. You, you're a little less scared. You can be a little more risky because you have the guns, you have the ammo, you have, you've upgraded your, you know, your standard weapon ability, your exotic weapon ability and stuff like that. Um, but it, I mean, it just feels like Bioshock and Prey. I know, I, I don't know if that like fully answers the question, but that's just like the best way I think I can explain it. All right. I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess I get it. Um, <laughs> I suppose like I'm not, I'm listening to you and I'm not really like hearing any hooks that would make me want to like get into it. I mean, I hear you say like you can make your character of agency over your character and you're kind of doing some Bioshock stuff. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe that, I mean, I don't know that I'm necessarily the target audience for this anyway. I do not um, think you are the target audience for this. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I am either. So I'm listening to this and I'm like, nothing about this sounds really good. And I just like, <laughs> I'm just not like, like, like when you talked about um, Soma, like, I don't, I don't think that I am necessarily in the basket for scary games or walking Sims. But when you talked about Soma, like you got me so curious about it. Like I heard the hooks in there that I went out and bought it. And in fact, it's, I'm going to be playing it pretty soon. Actually, I have it downloaded on my, um, xbox one i believe because that was where it got the um pacifist mod first so i have it over there and when you were talking about soma i'm like man this is not my shit but Corey's talking about it. i really want to play this it sounds interesting like the way that you were talking about it really sold it to me but i'm hearing you talk about this and i'm just like you could be describing a, a fish fillet and i have like literally like as much excitement for this game as i would for a frozen fish fillet like i just don't maybe it's just me i don't know i mean a lot of people hold this up as a, as a as an all-time great. So I guess that's my final question. This is probably not for me. I doubt I'm ever going to play this. But now that you've been through it, now that you've sampled it, now that you have played the games that inspired it and then played the original inspiration, do you feel like this game is worthy of the legacy? I mean, a lot of people know about System Shock 2, even people that were not even alive back then when it was a game. Do you feel like it it earns that? Is it is it is it truly one of the ones that you should play if you're a critic or a PC gamer? Um, I mean, I don't think you, like, have to play it, but I think that it definitely earns... I think everything that people say about it being, like, a Vanguard PC game is absolutely true because it feels so sophisticated and sort of just, like, the design of how you can build the character and how you can kind of explore the station at your own pace and how you can upgrade your character's abilities and how you have different kinds of weapons and different kinds of ammo types. And if you want to use this laser gun, you have to upgrade your energy weapon skill. You know, it's like it, it can it can lock you out of stuff, so you kind of have to specialize a little bit. And it just feels like, I mean, I play games now that, you know, perhaps try to pull this kind of stuff off that aren't as good at it. And so it kind of surprises me that, you know, coming, you know, I'm younger. So coming to, you know, playing Bioshock was probably the first game I had played that kind of is like this. And then Prey later and, you know, Bioshock 2 and even Fallout has a lot of similarities like Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas and stuff with the way you build your character. It's just surprising to me that, you know, 20 years ago, and I don't want to say this was like the only game that did it because I'm sure there are other examples out there of games that are around this old that did the same thing. But it just feels really sophisticated for its time. And me being somebody who, you know, I have a there's a lot of bars to clear here for me to play this. Like, first of all, it's on the PC and it kind of takes a lot for me to sit down and play a PC game for a really long time. Um, you know, second of all, it's a really old game and it's sometimes really hard to get into old games because try as I might, you know, I've said before, I've tried to play Deus Ex, I've tried to play Half-Life. It's just hard for me to get into them, um, especially with mouse and keyboard controls. 
Um, and then, you know, it's a pretty long game. Like, I think I played it for, like, 18 hours or something in order to beat it. You know, it's not just, like, a little six-hour game. You know, it's pretty lengthy. Um, and I did all of it, and I did all of it, and that same, that same like, weird trance that I fall under whenever I'm playing something like Dishonored or something like Prey or Deus Ex where I just get locked into it, and it's just the way that the, the, the player has agency and the way that it's not, like, forcing you to do anything at any given time and you know there's not like a big sort of like oh here's the countdown for the self-destruct go 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 like it's not like that and it's not like enemies are rushing at you left and right and trying to kill you all the time like it just has this really nice sort of player set pacing and that's something that i really like about all those games that i just mentioned is that they're not shooing you to the next area they're letting you go back and explore they're letting you kind of play the game the way that you want to play it. Um, so I really do think that it earns, um, you know, really earns a lot of the respect that it carries. And also just the fact that it's 20 years old and it sort of did all that stuff and did it well um, before any of the later games that it influenced came out is really surprising to me. And that's not to say that I enjoyed 100% of the game because there's definitely some stuff in it. Like, I think it's too long. Um, and I think the ending of it, like, it was just kind of drawn out a little bit. And, like, there's this weird ending section where, like, you take an escape pod and you, like, sort of, like, launch your escape pod into this, like, big, like, mass of monster. And you're, like, exploring, like, the bowels of this monster thing. And so you're, like, walking around in these gross, like, fleshy areas and you're having to, like... Uh, like destroy these gross like nerve endings in this like these these like intestinal monster thing and then and it's just like it's weird and it's drawn out and I think the ending of it is a little bit you know I wish that it would have like maybe wrapped itself up a little bit differently because that whole like exploring sort of like the gross like wet intestinal areas of this monster like I'm sure it was really ahead of its time at the time but it just felt a little bit drawn out and it felt a little bit silly to me. Um, so it's not perfect. You know, it's not like a 10 out of 10 for me or whatever. But I mean, just the fact that it kind of has a lot of those barriers of entry for me and the fact that I played it so much and played it very enthusiastically um, for most of the game and just was really able to kind of go about the game the way that I wanted to go about doing it um, really does make me have a lot of respect for it. And I definitely think that if this is a game, you know, if you're like me and you're scared of PC games, or maybe you're worried about going to play something like this. And if you enjoy the kind of games I do, like these kind of immersive sim type games where it really lets you kit your character and play it the way you want, um, I think it's definitely worth it to check this out. I mean, it probably hits Steam sales all the time. I'm pretty sure I bought it for like two or three dollars. You know, it's really old, but I definitely think it's worth it. And I, I recommend this. I think it's wonderful. I mean, it's definitely a Corey-ass game. It's a 20-year-old Corey-ass game, but a Corey-ass game nonetheless, and I'm just really pleased that it holds up even going back after all this time, you know, playing it for the first time with all of the modern sensibilities that I'm used to in games. It still really holds up, and I really enjoyed it. Excellent, excellent. I have to say that's not what I expected when you first told me you were playing this game, but I am glad that it wrapped up in such a good way. It sounds like you really enjoyed it. It sounds like it still has a lot to offer even after all this time, which I think is really the mark of a really, a truly great game, so... Heads up, folks, if you, uh, like Corey said, want to check this out and you maybe have been holding off, I mean, maybe this sounds like uh, you should maybe go for it. Uh, I do not think I would play <laughs> this, um, but I do I do hear the respect and I, I, I get what it does. Apparently, 
I think I do anyway. Uh, but <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this one to you and I will move on to something else. I think my big retro ask for this year is probably going to be my like fourth attempt at trying to get through um, Planescape Torment when it comes to PS4. Uh, so that's going to be my big like retro jaunt. I'm saving my retro <laughs> juice for that. So we'll talk about that in the future. But thank you very much, Corey, for covering System Shock 2. Um, just a couple minutes left in the show here. We should get to a couple little bits before we wrap. Any final thoughts on System Shock 2? Or can we move on? Uh, I think we can move on. All right, cool. Just a couple little quick things here. Um, first off, I uh, want to give a shout-out to superfan Jeroen, who is over in Germany. He is not dead. He emailed <laughs> me and said, yes, still alive. Good to hear from you, Jeroen. We got a little bit worried because you were sending us messages and comments and questions so often for a while. I mean, it seemed like it was almost weekly, and then you just like dropped off the map. So Corey and I were both a little bit concerned. We were getting ready to send out a search party. We were going to get some uh, bloodhounds and some some folks canvassing the woods out there. But no, you're, you're alive, and it's all good. Glad to hear from you. Um, I know that you sent us some questions, uh, but we will not answer those right now. Corey wants to do a little bit of research, and I think that's a really good idea. So we will get to those questions on a future episode. But we do have the questions, and we will get to them, but just not right now. But thank you for sending those in. And you will hear our answers uh, shortly. Also, um, shout out to Simone, a listener who reached out and contacted us with a couple of questions. So are you up for just a really, really brief Q&A right now, Corey? I would love a brief Q&A. Okay, I'll read. You go first, then I'll answer a second. Uh, so thank you for the question, Simone. And also for anybody else, if you ever want to ask us questions, we're always open to that. We will always answer questions. It doesn't have to be game related. It could be anything. It could be anything random. We'll answer any question that you want to send to us. Um, so wait for the info at the end of the show and send something in. If you like, we will answer your question just like we are answering Simone's right now. She says, I was wondering how you ended up being a game critic slash reviewer. Is this basically your career path? And do you see yourself ever doing anything else? Corey Motley, your answer, sir. Um, I... Um, and usual Corey fashion probably have like a slightly lengthy answer for this um, because this question is particularly interesting to me because whenever I was younger and when I say younger I mean like I mean I always played video games from when I was probably like five or six years old you know starting on the Atari and then Nintendo NES um, you know to the Sega Genesis the Super Nintendo I did not have the Sega Saturn or Sega CD but I had a Dreamcast, uh, PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, Xbox, Xbox 360. Like, I had, you know, most consoles and was playing video games all the time. Um, I remember I was a big connoisseur of video game magazines whenever I was younger. I subscribed to a handful of magazines. Um, I also really loved just, like, going to Barnes & Noble and sitting and reading them, you know, even if I didn't buy them or didn't have a subscription. And one of my favorite magazines back in the day was um, Electronic Gaming Monthly, or EGM, before it went under. Um, and something that I really liked about EGM is that one of their big hooks for the magazine is that they had, for most games, they had three people review every game. So instead of it just being one single person that wrote the review, they had three separate takes. And I mean, sometimes they all fell in line with each other. Sometimes somebody would give it a four and somebody would give it an eight. You know, that was pretty rare, but it was just cool to have different people reviewing games, much like how game critics, you know, not to toot our own horn, but how we sometimes, like we talked about earlier, doing second opinion and third opinion, um, because people have different tastes and it's hard to know, you know, from reading one person's review, like if your stuff, if your taste will fall in line with them. And so for the longest time, I wanted to be a video game journalist. That was like, 
the thing like for when i was like 15 up until i was like 22 that was the thing that i wanted to do and i actually went to um college i went to journalism school specifically because i wanted to be a video game journalist and i remember um uh, I went to the University of Missouri, the School of Journalism there, which is supposed to be one of the best journalism schools in the country. And I majored in magazine journalism because I wanted to work, you know, somewhere like EGM or somewhere like Game Informer. Like I want that's that was totally my thing that I wanted to do. And the more that I got, because, you know, I was young and I was naive and I didn't really know how the world worked whenever I was in college. Um, I was the first first person in my whole family to go to college, so I didn't really know what to expect. And, you know, whenever I got out of college, I had this really naive idea that, um, you know, you graduate college, you have your degree, and then you just, like, get the job you want. And then you have that job, and then there you go. You're happy. You're doing the thing you want to do. And it took me a really long time to figure out that it's not, that's not how the world works. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people that I went to school with who were able to graduate from school and then they immediately moved to New York or they moved to San Francisco or they moved to LA probably because they have rich families and they can afford to do that. I was, I did not come from a wealthy background. So I could, I could never do that. A lot of people that I knew in, in college, they would do interns over the summer. They would move to New York for the summer they would work for a magazine. They wouldn't get paid a dime from the magazine because uh, editorial internships never pay anything. And I always thought, like, how can you afford that? Like, your family must be loaded to send you to New York for an entire summer, one of the most expensive places to live in the United States, and you're just working for free. And so I, I always... Um, it was one of my principles that I would never do an unpaid internship. So I never did an internship in college because I wasn't about to bust my ass working for a magazine for free because that's not the way I work. I get, I want to get paid for my work. Um, so I never did an internship. And whenever I graduated, I sort of slowly realized over time that most of the editorial work that's out there in the world is freelance and you have to be busting your ass and pitching articles to magazines and websites, you know, pitching 10 articles a day, um, you know, hitting up sources. And it's just, you know, the editorial lifestyle. It's uh, pitching sources. It's knowing people. It's knowing editors. It's knowing publishers, uh, pitching all this stuff. And then, you know, once you get a story on lock and you think you have it developed and you pitch it and maybe somebody accepts it and then maybe you get to write it, um, you don't get paid shit for the stuff you do. Like the articles you write are not worth anything. And you basically, and I mean, I say this with the utmost respect to people that, that live this freelance lifestyle, because I've had friends who've worked for magazines, who've worked for websites, who bust their fucking asses. They're writing all these articles all day. They're covering all these news stories. They're getting press releases and they're turning these press releases into, you know, turning them around into news stories, but they're not getting paid anything for what they're doing. And I just slowly came to realize that that's not that I don't want to do that. Like, I know that there's this idea of having to like, you know, work your way up from the bottom rung up to the top. And maybe it's like stuck up for me to say that, but I don't want to live that lifestyle just so in 10 years, maybe I can be an editor at a magazine or an associate editor. And you know, it's just, it's so competitive. There's not very many professional game journalists out there there's a pretty big freelancing pool, but you don't know a whole lot of them by name and you have to work really hard or be really lucky or both, or on top of that, come from a really privileged background that lets you 
go down that path where money is less of an object for you in order to work your way up to that level. And I, I did, I lost interest. I wasn't interested in doing that. So I ended up having a degree and I mean, of course I can still do something, you know, writing something editorial with my degree, but I suddenly didn't want to do games journalism anymore. But at some point in college, I don't even remember how Brad, how you and I met, I know we met on Twitter, but I don't remember how, who followed who first, how we knew each other. But at one point I remember I had played the very first thing I wrote for Game Critics was a review for um, Spec Ops The Line because I remember playing it and that was the game that everybody was in love with that year. It was this subversive military third-person shooter that really fucked with your head. And I, I heard all the hype and I played it and I thought it was garbage. And so I remember, I think I just DM'd you and I was like, hey, I'm interested in writing for you or maybe you had put out a call for new writers or something. And, um, you know, I gave you some clips because I had been writing a few reviews in college for a magazine in college. And, um, and you know, I got accepted and I was able to write. And then from then on out, I was sort of like on your list of people, you know, to get games if there were games to review or if I had bought something, I could pitch you the review that I wanted to write or something. Um, but to be totally frank, and you and I say this all the time, like Game Critics doesn't pay. Like we're not getting paid to write the reviews. We do get a lot of free games, which is wonderful. Um, but we're not getting paid. It's just something we do because we love it, because it's fun. When we do the podcast every week, we're not getting paid to do this. It's just something we do for fun. So luckily, I'm in a place right now where because I have a full-time job, um, I can support myself and then just kind of afford to be able to do this kind of writing for fun because I don't want the passion that I have for games to turn into this like nose to the grindstone freelance job where I'm busting my ass and not getting paid very much and struggling to survive because it's all freelance and I just am not really about that lifestyle and so that's sort of like my journey I know that was a really long story and I know I said up front it was going to be long but that's sort of like my journey where I thought I had this idea of what I wanted to do and I thought I knew how I could get it but once I sort of was in my later years of college and had graduated college, it took me a really long time to realize that the way I thought the world worked is not necessarily the way the world worked. And I wasn't well connected or smart enough to be able to just move to New York after graduating from college and getting some job at some magazine. Like I don't have the privilege and the background to do that. So I just, I wouldn't say I gave up on my idea of being a games journalist because I'm still, you know, doing stuff. I'm still doing the podcast, still writing for game critics every once in a while. I'm still playing games a lot. And I think that my opinion is um, sufficient and that it matters, but I didn't want to do the grind of freelancing my ass off for not a lot of payoff. And so I just, I just didn't want to do it and I didn't do it. And so now I just write for Game Critics sometimes, do the podcast every week. And, um, you know, I mean, if there was ever a position that opened up, you know, if anybody ever said, hey, I think you should apply for, I don't know, this associate editor position somewhere, like, I'm sure I'd probably apply for it and just see what happens. But I'm way too jaded to just to be as naive about how I thought the world worked when it did when I was younger. Um, I, so I'm sorry. Very long answer. I apologize. But that's sort of how I see things in my journey through everything. All right. Um, you know, gosh, I don't remember how we met either. I was actually trying to think of this the other day, and I just absolutely cannot recall how we ended up bumping into each other. I mean, of course, it was through Game Critics. It must have been. Um, but I don't remember anything about that. I have blanked it out of my memory. I have suppressed. <laughs> must have been traumatic because I have suppressed it. I don't know. We'll have to have to go back in the archives and figure it out. Um, so Simone, good question. Um, as for me, how did I end up being a game critic slash reviewer? I have 
always loved games ever since I was a kid. And ever since I was a kid, I have always kept little lists about stuff that I thought about games. So I, I remember going through a storage bin one time when I was cleaning out a room and I found a little notebook from when I must have been nine or ten. And I had written down, like, you know, like a little college rule notebook. I had written down, like, the name of games I had played that year. I think a lot of them were, like, NES games uh, or something like that. And, like, I had written down, like, numbers, you know, like, next to them, like, 1 out of 10, 3 out of 10. <laughs> and I had written little comments like, oh, this one was a waste of electricity or this one was terrible <laughs> or this one was great. So even when I wasn't a reviewer, I was still kind of reviewing games back in the day. And, of course, I mean, that must have been inspired, kind of like you, Corey, by EGM or by, you know, Game Pro, Game Informer, because I read all the magazines back in the day. I'm sure that's where I got the idea from. So I must have been inspired enough. And in fact, just kind of a little side note, um, one of the writers at Game Pro, Sid Vicious, do you remember Sid Vicious? Mm, do you ever read Game bit. Pro? I read well, I, sparingly, yeah. Well, Game Pro was one of the ones I read fairly often because my local newsstand got that one the most often. And I remember just reading, you know, seeing these people in this in this uh, magazine and looking up to them as they were like pros that were doing this thing that I wanted to do. And a while after I joined Twitter, uh, that guy actually was on Twitter and followed me one day. And I'm like, holy shit, it's Sid from it's Sid from GamePro. He followed me. And I messaged him and I'm like, holy shit, are you Sid from GamePro? And he's like, yeah, that's me. And I'm like, oh, my God, dude, you're like my hero. I totally like look up to you. And he's like, oh, right, that's awesome. And so we're still kind of friends. I talked to him, but it turns out that I'm actually older than he is, which is kind of weird. So I don't know how that worked out. Uh, but it was really cool to like finally make that uh, acquaintance uh, many years later. But anyway, uh, how did I become a game critic reviewer? Uh, I just kept doing that thing, playing a lot of games, having a lot of opinions. And when I was about 20, I moved to Hawaii on my own just because I wanted to have an adventure. And I didn't know anybody there, and I didn't have a lot to do when I wasn't working. So I just ended up, like, staying home and reading the internet a lot because you can only go to the beach so many times. <laughs> uh, and I think I read a review of, I want to say it was Code Veronica. I remembered really not liking Code Veronica, Resident Evil Code Veronica at the time. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I was, you know, reading reviews, and it seemed like everybody was in love with it. Until I hit one review where they they did not like it, and that was, uh, I believe it was Chi, who is the owner of Game Critics, and he wrote a review. He kind of trashed it, and I'm like, yeah, man, fucking trash that game. That, that game sucks. And I was so happy to see that somebody else on the internet kind of had the same attitude that I did, so I started following Game Critics, uh, reading. I mean, there was no follow at that time. It was just that you just went back to the website and read every once in a while, like you manually kept up with the news, right? Um, and so after a while they put out a call for writers and I'm like, yeah, I'll fucking write for you guys. I don't, I, I don't know. Why not? Why not? So I sent something in, uh, they took me on like right away. They said they were really impressed with my sample and that made me really happy and excited. And I just was like a staff writer for a little while. And then I just kind of worked my way up the ranks. I mean, I was a writer and then I was like, um, I don't know, like content producer or something. And then it was like, you know, associate editor and managing editor. And I am just the editor, um, basically the top dog at the site right now, other than, than, than the owner, Chi, who is not really around too much anymore. He kind of manages from the shadows, basically. <laughs> um, so that's just how we got into it. I just like games and I wanted to find people who thought the same that I did. And I found that in Game Critics and I have been very happy there ever since. Uh, and it will be... That can't be right. It must have been 2000. It was 2000. It was 2000. And right now it is. Yeah. So I've been at Game Critics pretty close to 20 years. So it's been a really long time. 
Uh, is this my career path? No, because Corey, like Corey said, you don't make any money doing game reviews. I know people who do it for a living and they all have spouses that have real jobs. Like it's basically <laughs> impossible. I mean, not even joking, dude. Like most of the people I know who do this for a quote unquote living and no disrespect to them. I mean, if you're doing what you want to do, more power to you. I know this is a dream for a lot of people, so I'm not I'm not dragging it down, but you can't live on the money you make as being a game reviewer. You have to be like a monk eating nothing but like white rice and sharing a room with like 16 other people and just being miserable all the time because it doesn't pay jack fucking shit. Uh, even if you're a good one, you barely make any money. Like you will never buy a house. You will, you know, you'll have to buy like the most wrecked ass, like used car you could find, or maybe you're just riding the <laughs> bus all the time. I mean, not to equivalent, not to equate success spiritually with success financially, but you got to eat, like you got to have clothes, you got to have a life, you know? And like, honestly, at that time when I was still a young guy and I was like, well, I could really pour myself into being a game reviewer and focus on that. I thought about maybe moving to San Francisco because that's where everybody was. And, and pursuing that professionally. But I'm like, you know, but I also really want to like get laid and have a girlfriend and I want to have kids someday and I want to buy a house and I want to like have a car and I want to be able to, you know, take a girl out on a date and be able to pay for pizza and not have to like have her pay for it, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> I can't do any of those things if I'm a game reviewer. There's no way. Like it just doesn't work. The economics don't work. Because like Corey said, you got to bust your ass. You got to network like crazy. You got to like work really really hard like and you get paid pennies it takes so many hours to get through a game and it takes so many hours to do a write-up and then go through the edits to make your editor happy and by the end of it you're making a hundred bucks 150 bucks 200 bucks i mean maybe more if you're lucky and it's like man there's no way this is a reality there's no way this works so i chose to not pursue it as a career i kept it as a hobby i'm really glad that i did because i did end up finding a wife and having a kid and I haven't bought a house yet still working on that but I have a car and I can I can put food on the table with my regular day job which has absolutely nothing to do with game reviewing so I, I recommend people write about games for fun I do not recommend they do it as a career and as far as do I see myself ever doing anything else no I don't think so I will probably write about games for the rest of my life I will play games for the rest of my life I will run game critics as long as they will have me as long as I'm editor there and I don't think I would ever change, but I will keep it as a hobby basically forever. I'm never going to try to turn it into my full-time gig. Uh, I just, I love games too much for that. And if I did it full-time, I would start to hate games. I would get really burned out. I would hate like working for other people. I've tried it a few times. I've freelanced for other sites before and I hate it. I don't like taking orders from editors who I think are stupid. I don't like covering games that I don't like. And I just, it sucked all the fun out of games for me. So I didn't want to lose that joy and I will never do it working for someone else and I will never do it as my full-time gig. So I'm, I'm happy to be the editor. I'm happy to write for game critics because I get to write what I want to write, play what I want to play. I get shit. I get more free games than I could ever play <laughs> and I get all sorts of t-shirts and shit like that. So that's totally fine, but it's not going to be a career and I'm, I'm not going to try to make it that. So Simone, I hope we answered your question. I hope we shed a little bit of light on who we are and how we got here. And uh, I mean, I don't know about you, Corey, but my advice is uh, don't do it professionally do it for fun. I bet you'll be a lot happier. You'll probably make a lot more money. So that's uh, that's my take. Corey, agree? Yeah, I mean, just know that if you want to do it professionally, you're unless you are like deeply connected and know someone who knows someone who knows someone, you're going to have to bust your ass. More, more likely than not, you're going to have to bust your ass for a long time doing a lot of stuff in the industry that you're probably not going to want to do, covering games that you don't want to play, writing stuff you don't want to write about, in order to even 
get to a position that has like a little bit of respect in the industry. So, I mean, it's not impossible, but you just have to know that you have to work your ass off for not a lot of money for a long time in order to really, um, I guess like earn like a, a great editor position or something like that. And even if you are like an editor for a site, you're probably still not going to be making very much money, but you might be getting paid, which is cool. But it's just unrealistic to think that, that it's an easy career path or that it pays a lot or that you'll be like happy or that you'll have a lot of free time. Like you just have to know that going in. Yeah. I guarantee you'll be a lot happier if you just do it on the side or if you, you know, get married to somebody who's got a lot of money can fund you and doing it. They might be happy doing that, but man, it is, it is a lot of work. It is a lot of sorrow. It is a lot of like blood, sweat and tears for not much return. It's, it's pretty thankless, especially these days when there are so few magazines that are still in existence so few websites that are still in existence. It's just not. It's a, a really tough road to hoe. So anyway, we should probably wrap it up, Corey. Um, I don't have anything else to say unless you got something else. I say let's bring it home, sir. Uh, I think we can bring it home. Let's do it. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, that brings us to the end of episode 140. Uh, remember, you can stick around after the ending music. We do have some banter this week. I get, If you listened last week, I give some hearty updates to my car being stranded in flooding Louisiana situations. So stay tuned if that's interesting for you. Um, and we also talk about Japanese potatoes. Uh, make of that what you will. If that's intriguing, then listen on. Um, but if you don't want to listen to the banter, by all means, you can get out of here right now. Um, it makes no difference to us. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that in a multitude of ways. You can send us any thoughts, any feedback, any any questions, just like the question we just answered. If you have any questions for us, we're always game to do some Q&A stuff. Um, and the uh, first way you can get in contact with us is via email. Our email address is sovideogamespodcast at gmail.com, spelled exactly how it sounds. Even though we say so video games, it's just so video games. Uh, nothing special. You can also um, leave comments on the Game Critics website whenever our shows go live there. There's always a page for a show. There's always a comment section underneath every show, so you can comment there. You can also comment on SoundCloud. It's rare, but sometimes people do it. Our shows are on SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter. We are uh, on Twitter as a collective show. Our Twitter handle is at SoVideoGames over there. And last but not least, you can also reach us individually on Twitter and on Instagram if you would prefer. Uh, Brad, would you like to give out your social media handles? Yep, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. It's my name, B-R-A-D-G-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, all A's, no O's. Excellent. And you can find me on uh, on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Uh, my first and last name, much like Brad's, uh, it's just my first and last name. It is Corey Motley. That is C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y. And I think that's it. Uh, Brad, do you have any closing notes before we sign off? No, that's it. Just thanks everybody for listening and uh, we will see you again next week. Indeed, we will see you next week. That brings us to the end of episode 140, but we will be back for episode 141 next week. Uh, but that's the end of this episode. So until next time, this is bye from Corey. And bye from Brad. We'll see you then. Feels weird to be recording on the laptop again. This is so strange.
Not only is it weird to be recording on a laptop, we're recording at a completely different time of day, which feels a little bit strange as well. Multiple strangeness <laughs> happening. Uh, we usually record like at noon or so, and now we're switching to a PM, so that kind of gives a different flavor. Got a different amount of sunlight streaming in through the window, <laughs> different vibe. Just had a wonderful dinner, so I'm like full of dinner, so I may be a little bit more mellow right now. It's possible. <laughs> possible. Not guaranteed, but possible. The, the wife... Uh, had a little bit of extra time and she was feeling particularly chefy. So she uh, went into the kitchen and she made this most delicious uh, barbecue chicken that was um, like a pull, ended up being kind of like a pulled chicken. And she fried little pieces of garlic to go on top. And then there was roasted broccoli, which is always a favorite at our house. And then uh, she finished it off with a uh, baked Japanese sweet potato, which was super good and i had this whole meal and i was just like really loving it it was like every bit of it was delicious i ate too much because uh, <laughs> i couldn't stop eating and now here we are what can may i ask what makes a japanese baked sweet potato what's the japanese part of it uh well if you get the ones that are from okinawa uh which is um an island well i mean of course japan is like a series of islands but okinawa <laughs> is like kind of its own separate thing in japan like i'm not super up on like Japanese culture and lore. So if any of our, our well-versed listeners out there want to correct me, go for it. But apparently the people in Okinawa are kind of like, the, like a, I don't know, like a subset of the Japanese people. Like I guess they're their own culture-ish and they have their own different foods and stuff like that. And if you get the Okinawan sweet potato, which is one that is pretty popular, uh, it's actually purple. It is a purple potato. Um, the inside oh. is still pretty yellowish, but the skin is very purple. And when you see it, you're like, oh, that looks weird. That's a fucking purple potato. What's going on? Uh, so, But it's very, very sweet, intensely sweet. And it's often used in a lot of desserts. Um, I lived in Hawaii for a while, as you may remember. And a lot of the Hawaiians use Okinawan potato as a stuffing for sweet rolls. And they sometimes put it on ice cream or they use it in like some baked goods. You make a cake out of it sometimes. So it's really sweet. And if you, um, you know, you get a good, good ripe one. And you cook it up the way that it's supposed to be cooked. I mean, it's almost, I mean, like, seriously, like, if you bake this fucking potato, uh, cut it in half, and you could put, like, chocolate sauce and whipped cream on top of it, Whoa. like, it would be it would be delicious. You'd be like, oh, shit, this is really good. Sounds crazy, but it's true. Hmm. Okay, I was, whenever you said Japanese sweet potato, my stupid ass mind was thinking, like, oh, it's just, like, a baked potato with, like, sushi on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> You are a fucking madman. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to tell that to Gina once we're off the recording. And she's going to laugh and laugh and laugh. <laughs> I mean, to be clear, that's not exactly what I thought. But then my mind went there because I was like, what is what is so... I thought maybe, like, the toppings are on it were something, like, Japanese-inspired. Not that it was, like, the potato itself. So I get it now. No, no. Well, you know, us being on the West Coast, I don't know how it is over where you are, whether whether speaking about Louisiana or whether your previous uh, living locations were. But here on the West Coast, you know, we have very strong Asian influence because we're so, you know, we're on we're on the literal Pacific Rim and we're closer to Asia than other parts of the country are. And so we have a pretty large Asian population. And along with that, we have a lot of people who uh, want to have foods and stuff from you know, the countries of origin. So we have a lot of Asian grocery stores out here, um, a lot of them. And so you can go to any of these and they'll have like a wide variety of stuff that you just do not see in other, you know, like a Safeway or, a, you know, whatever other grocery store is nearby you. 
Um, so you can go and get like all sorts of uh, stuff that's brought in from overseas, you know, sweet potatoes and different greens and different fruits, like so many fruits that I guarantee you've never seen in your life. Like you don't even know what they're called. You don't even know what they taste like. All sorts of wonderful um, stuff. And then that's not even to mention all of the packaged foods. I mean, there's I mean, unfortunately, I don't know what half of them are because a lot of them do not have any English labeling. You just kind of have to look at the picture and make your best guess. Uh, but man, so many cool foods and delicious stuff and novelties and interesting things that you would never think you would see in a grocery store. So uh, that's where we got the sweet potato today. And uh, it's just up the road a piece. It's not too far, uh, but lots of delicious stuff. So um, a lot of our cooking here in the house swings Asian just because I really like that flavor profile and I have a lot of experience with it. So we tend to do a lot um, like we have rice pretty often. I think we probably eat rice probably more often than most of like white America does. And maybe people would think that's weird, but I mean, I could eat rice like morning, noon, and night, and my son has it as a normal part of his everyday diet, and it's just incorporated. Um, we buy it in like like 30-pound bags because we use that much rice here in the house. So uh, you can definitely say that we, uh, we were trying to bridge the, the Pacific, at least culinarily speaking. <laughs> um, there actually is an Asian market in New Orleans. There actually, I mean, I think there's more than one uh, that I go to pretty often. Well, I say pretty often. I've only been maybe like four or five times, but um, it's kind of the same. It sounds similar. I'm sure the one where you are is probably a lot more robust, but the one here, it sounds like a similar setup where you're just kind of like in the Asian market and like you recognize a lot of stuff, but a lot of the packaging is just in Japanese uh, or uh, some such um, language and you can't really tell or maybe there's like one line of English on and the rest of it is in uh, like Japanese characters but I really like I don't remember if I've said this uh, before but I really 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 like um, iced Thai tea and that is one of and I love Thai food and I always get Thai tea whenever I go and get Thai food and they actually carry cans of uh, cold Thai tea at this Asian um, market and so I really like going I'll just go in and take like a hand basket and I'll put like eight cans of the, and it's like tall cans, kind of like a tall beer can of uh, the cold Thai tea in my basket and just some other stuff and then take it up and pay for it. And I actually bought, um, they have a like a big uh, bag of tea, of Thai tea that you brew yourself. And so I've started brewing Thai tea at home lately just to kind of see if I can do it myself. And then I put some like condensed milk on the top of it and mix it in. And I, it's not as good as the canned stuff. I mean, is anything ever as good as the canned stuff, but, um, it is very good. And I, uh, so maybe I need to explore our Asian market and see if I can find some Asian potatoes and sweet potatoes there. You should give it a shot. I mean, uh, when I was younger, <clears throat> we would go and I mean, I would, I would sometimes just like pick something at random and see what I could make with it. Um, I haven't done that in a while, but like, that's kind of something fun to do. And you never know, like when you come up with your, like your new favorite thing, like I ended up, um, one time getting some Chinese broccoli, uh, which does not really look like broccoli. And I'm not sure that you would guess it was a kind of a broccoli, um, <laughs> uh, but it's actually ended up being super good and it ended up being one of my favorite vegetables. I don't have it that often because, um, I just don't buy it that often, but when I used to, um, see it in restaurants around here and once I knew what it was, I could spot it on the menu and I'm like, oh yeah, definitely getting that. And like... You know, you just experiment in different stuff. We see uh, a lot of, like, um, garlic offshoot plants that are like garlic but not quite like garlic, and they're kind of like a mix between green onions and garlic, and so they're like a stem-based plant, but they've got, like, a really, like, rich, spicy garlic taste. Those are really good. Just today, we were there, and we saw a jackfruit that was, like, larger than my son, and I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen a jackfruit <laughs> as big as that. It's like, if you've you ever seen a jackfruit, they're one of the ones that are covered in spikes. And so, like, you look at it, it looks like a medieval um, weapon. And it's just, like, this giant fucking spiky ball. 
Um, I've never had that because I've never been brave enough to buy one because I wouldn't know how to open it or what to do with it. But I may look it up online one time and just to figure it out. But it's funny you mentioned the Thai tea because I do like those quite a bit. But I get a lot of uh, soy milk from the Asian market. And it comes in cans and you just drink it like a drink. And I know like a lot of people are, you know, like soy has come up so often in the political landscape lately. But it's like, fuck off. I mean, it's just a drink. And uh, I, I, it's kind of like for me, it's kind of like a mix between a drink and a snack because there's enough protein in it that you kind of feel like you're kind of more full than you would be if you had drank like a soda or just like water or something. Uh, but it's sweet enough to kind of replace soda for me sometimes. So I get a lot of those. I like all the ones. Um, I think one of them's from Vietnam is a really good one. And I think I get another one from China, which is also pretty good. But uh, yeah, I bought like 20 cans of that today. And, you know, whenever I go down there, I'm just like, well, I'm not going to be coming back for a couple weeks. So you got to load up and just buy whatever they got. <laughs> so it's good. I love that store. Really, really good. Uh, dig the Asian foods for sure. Yeah, I picked up some, um, I haven't done anything with it yet, but now that you mentioned jackfruit, um, I picked up some cans. I, they probably have the actual fruits at our Asian market, but I just haven't like looked for them. Um, but I picked up some canned jackfruit because I've been meaning to make, I really, really, really love pulled pork and pulled pork sandwiches, but I've heard that you can make jackfruit. Like, oh, I've fake heard that too. Yes, I've heard and that. I'm like, I'm like super curious to try it. The problem is that I didn't look up a recipe before I bought the cans the last time I went, and I bought the jackfruit that's in brine. And apparently, you're supposed to get the jackfruit that's canned in water, and that's supposed to be better. So I might do like a crash course run and trying to make it with the brine. And who knows? Maybe it'll be like gross or like salty or something. But the next time I go back, I'll have to look for it either canned in water or maybe just look for the fruits themselves and try it because I'm really uh, curious to try that because I've heard it's like indecipherable from pulled pork like once you get it cooked and you get the barbecue sauce in and everything and I certainly hope that's true because I would uh, love sort of like a healthier I guess vegetarian alternative to traditional pulled pork. I was just going to ask if you guys are swinging vegetarian or was it just curiosity that made you think of that? Um, just curiosity. I mean, every once in a while I dip into, um, I mean, I say, I say this like it was yesterday, but it was probably like five years ago. I was vegetarian for a few months and I think like a couple years later I was vegetarian for a few months. And to be totally frank, um, usually I only do it to lose weight. Like I know it's, you know, animal rights and whatever, but, um, I do it just kind of like to get on a health track to lose weight. And to be uh, fair, the last time I did it seriously, I, I, I was working out a lot. I went completely vegetarian, so I was cooking at home a lot because it's kind of hard to find vegetarian food out if you're eating out a lot. And if that's not just like a salad here and there. Um, right, right. And I stopped drinking alcohol and I lost like, I, don't, I mean, it was like seven pounds or something in three months. So that was pretty exciting. And then I promptly dropped the diet and then gained a bunch of weight back. So that was really fun. But, um, but I just want to do it just to see because if I can find like a healthier alternative because I make stuffed peppers a lot at home. That's sort of like my big go-to meal prep, but I always buy like the veggie meat crumbles and use those yeah, instead of yeah. ground beef. So, um, and I'm, but I'm not like full on vegetarian or anything, but if I, if given the option, if I could find a substitute that's pretty indecipherable um, from like meat or whatever, I'll usually try to go that direction. Yeah. You know, sometimes those fake meats can be pretty good. I mean, I'm not a vegetarian by any means, but if someone puts like a veggie burger in front of me, I will very happily eat it. And I don't have any problem with like, you know, fake meat or, you know, chicken spelled with a Q or anything like that. Like, I don't <laughs> care. Like, I'll just, you know, whatever is fine. And in fact, I think I may have mentioned this before, but we get um, the chorizo, which is down at Trader Joe's and it's like a tofu based chorizo. Man, it is so good. I actually oh. think it's better than the real stuff. I, I totally prefer it. I'll have to look um, for that. I love Trader Joe's. 
Oh yeah, it's so good. And if you like chorizo, I mean, I mean, it's it tastes exactly like the real thing. And there's no none of the gross like cartilage or meat bits that sometimes you get in a real <laughs> chorizo, which which super grosses me out. Like when I get something that I know my body can't chew and can't process, like I just like the gag reflex kicks in and I'm just done with that meal. Like I just can't eat anymore. So having it be all soy and just smushy and edible is really nice. And just the flavors right on. It's really good. Son loves it and he um you know can't really tell the difference between uh, real and fake either. So thumbs up to Trader Joe's soy chorizo. It's pretty amazing. Hell yeah. Thumbs up to that and thumbs down to my goddamn neighbor who is running his stupid ass truck outside of our fucking house, which you're going to be able to hear on this recording. Oh, my God. It's so annoying. It doesn't sound too bad. So I guess let's just power through and hopefully he'll be he'll run out of gas before the show's over. You know, who knows? I hope so. Oh, my God. Speaking of gas, um, do you want to hear the latest updates on my car situation? Yeah, absolutely. So just to recap, people, you got into like some quasi tsunami situation last week and like <laughs> flooding and your car was underwater and you were swimming for the surface and there were sharks and all this crazy shit <laughs> left your car at the bottom of the ocean so what ended up happening did you uh get like a uh, like a big tugboat and pull it up from the bottom and sort of kick all the fish out of it or what'd you do <laughs> well yeah to catch everyone up um i did my car got stranded like last week i'm not going to talk about all of it because i talked about it extensively in banter last week but my car got stuck in flooded streets in new orleans from this giant like tropical thunderstorm situation um the kind of wild thing is that it was supposed to like the hurricane stuff was supposed to hit like it kept getting pushed back like it was because we recorded on Wednesday last week and Wednesday was the day that like Tuesday night and a Wednesday morning was the day the big thunderstorm happened. And then it was like the hurricane was supposed to hit like Wednesday night and then it got pushed back to Thursday night and then it got pushed back to Friday night and then it got pushed to Saturday because I guess it like slowed down or something like in the Gulf or whatever. And it's such a weird feeling being in because it's not the first time I've been in that scenario since moving here where it's like, you know, that there's like a, a hurricane out there or a tropical storm or, you know, whatever, a tropical depression, whatever it is. And, and like you, you, you just like have no idea what's going to happen. Like you can do all the preparation you want to do. Like you can, I mean, if you have a business, there were a lot of business around here that closed completely on Thursday and Friday and some on Saturday. Um, like the Chipotle down the street, they had like sandbags up all around the entrance and they were closed. I think, I, I think those are called burritos, Corey. What? sandbag burritos really <laughs> sorry it was too obvious and lame i had to go for it <laughs> they had their burritos out front in front of their doors to keep the uh, water away and and uh, and it's just weird because it's like you never know what's going to happen and so the hurricane ended up touching down like but i think it was between like us and a town called lafayette which is about two to three hours away uh, west of new orleans and and really like nothing happened in new orleans like even the school that i work for closed down on thursday and friday um a bunch of businesses like a ton of businesses were closed on thursday and friday there's a strip that's like five minutes down the street from my house that just has a lot of like you know a handful like chain restaurants and there's like a world market and an ulta and like a shoe store and a marshall's there's like a bunch of stuff and everything but like wendy's and i think mcdonald's was closed over there so it was just weird like driving around and there being absolutely nothing open but the nice news is that nothing really happened like yeah the hurricane slash uh tropical storm um touched down but it was so far away that like it didn't even rain very heavily but to get back to the actual story here about my car um so my car got stranded in water um at the time of recording last week 
I had been, it had been stranded in a parking lot and it wouldn't start. I got it out of the water. It was on, you know, relatively dry land, but it wouldn't start. I had walked home. We'd recorded the show. And so the following day on Thursday, I'd gotten it towed to the dealership so that way they could look at it and they had to diagnose it, get in touch with my insurance company. And then I had to authorize them to like fix it. And then we just figured out what was going on from there. Well, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday passes, and I have not heard anything from anybody. I don't even know if the car dealership was open on Thursday and Friday because of the the storming, or, or on Saturday, more on Friday and Saturday, I mean. Um, and so on Monday, I'm working from home, and I get a phone call from State Farm, and I've been, I've call, I've been on the phone with like eight different people from State Farm up until this point, and, and uh, she, it's a new woman, and she's asked me questions about the car and about you know kind of just how much water was uh, around it and everything and there was a tiny bit of standing water that got into my car and got into my floorboards maybe like an inch or two and basically um whenever she heard that on the phone she was like well we consider that i think she called it like a level two like breach or something a level and, two breach yeah i guess Send she a response said, team. yeah so like she was trying to explain it to me in levels of like level one is like water on the outside level two is on the inside level three is like uh, up to the seats level four is like up to the dashboard or something um which it wasn't that bad it was just like a couple inches of standing water in the floorboards and that's it but uh much to my chagrin that was enough to total my car so my car was declared a total loss oh um, wow jesus yeah so um so now i i have been thrust very urgently into the world of having to buy a car and the thing that really it's just just my luck, I guess I should say, is that the last time I had to get a new car, the car that I was currently driving, a Honda Fit, um, I only had to buy that because somebody T-boned my old car, and I got and it, I, somebody T-boned me in an intersection. Luckily, I was not hurt, even though if they had T-boned me a split second later, I probably would have been. Um, so, like, that car got totaled, and then I was thrust into the world of having to buy a car immediately. Because car shopping is hard enough, but car shopping, when you don't have a car, is even harder. Even harder, so, yes. Yes. Absolutely. So, like, that's what happened then. I had to, like, buy a car, and I didn't have a car. And then this is the exact same thing happening again. So, like, I don't have a car. I've been working from home all week. I've been trying to car shop online, and I've been trying to go to dealerships and stuff. And so yesterday um, – and, and to be uh, clear, I got an insurance payout for my car. So – I'm not going to disclose how much I got, um, but I got more than I thought I was would, which is pretty good news. Um, nothing extravagant, but I uh, so I'm planning on using that to make a down payment on another car. And I had been pretty set on buying a used car, um, you know, and I had like a few different car models in mind. Um, and I had been out looking. We have a CarMax here, so I had been out to the CarMax lot looking with Patrick, and I we had gone to a few dealerships and looked, and then. I was kind of pricing some stuff online and I just decided like um, I used to drive a Honda fit and I really liked it and Honda still makes Honda fits. Um, and so I thought, well, you know what, if I'm going to buy a car, like maybe I should just buy a brand new Honda fit. Like I already know the car. I already love it. I know that a new one, cause I drove an 08. So a new one would be like 11 years newer and it would have all this cool technology and shit that I'm not used to in cars. Cause I've never, um, I mean, I guess a, the car that I got T-boned in, I got, new at the time because my parents bought it for me for like a sort of like a graduation college present kind of deal um like way back in 2008 um and but I've never really like bought myself a new car and so I'm like okay well maybe I'll just buy a new one but the big (laughs) 
the big thing here, and I'm only bringing harm to myself whenever I have the stipulation, like I'm sort of in the mindset of, okay, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a car, and especially if I'm going to buy a brand new car, I want to get exactly what I want to get because I'm not going to spend, you know, 18 or 19 or $20,000 on a car that I don't want. Like, what's the point of that? And so the thing that I'm not willing to compromise on or I'm trying really, really hard not to compromise on is that I used to drive a stick shift and I want another manual car. I want a five-speed or a six-speed manual transmission. And would you believe it if I told you that those are fucking hard to find in 2019? I totally believe it because it's just getting phased out. I think more and more people are just doing automatic. And I think a lot of people don't even know how to even drive uh, uh, a manual, to be fair. Yeah, that's exactly right. So on on uh, a couple days ago, yesterday, as a matter of fact, God, these days, uh, um, yesterday felt like it was both yesterday and 16 years ago. Um, I spent all afternoon at the Honda dealership and I went there and I had... And I like, you know, there's like a sales guy that took me to his desk or whatever. We were talking about what I wanted. And you should have seen, I was like explaining to him. I'm like, okay, I want a Honda Fit. I want a new one, preferably. Um, I want the EX body style. There's like four body styles on the Honda Fits. The EX is kind of the one I want. And then you should have seen the look on his face when I said, okay, I also want a manual transmission. And he knew in that moment. That, that he was not going to make a sale. <laughs> that this, well, yeah, that this was never going to happen. So he like went off with his boss and they were like searching all the areas. So out of like Louisiana and all of the surrounding states, so Louisiana, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas, there is one single six-speed Honda Fit that is available and it is in Houston, Texas, which is like seven, like six or seven hours away. The problem is that it is not the body style that I want. So I'm having like, and I realize I'm going to sound really uptight and really picky and really snooty and whatever, but like, I don't think I want it because I want the car that I want. And so yesterday he was like, I test drove a different, like a Honda Civic SI, which is kind of like a sports car type Honda Civic. And it was like, cause they had a few, they had like three or four six speeds of those on their lots. And he's like, well, we have a few of these. Um, you know, we could cut you a deal on it because we know it's not what you want. And so I test drove it. And, like, it was it was a nice car, perfectly acceptable. Um, you know, felt sporty, felt cool, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's just not really what I want. And so I'm stuck at this weird crossroads of, like, do I – if it's even still available, do I have them bring the car from Houston to me, even though it's not really the one I want, but I could probably settle on it? Or I've been looking at used cars online again, because throughout this whole process, I've been looking at used cars. And I found a couple, um, not Honda Fits, but like other stick shift cars in the area that I'm interested in looking at. I found one uh, Scion that's at like a Toyota dealership here that I'm interested in. That's only like a 2015. So it's still new enough. And But I haven't gone to look at it because I, I couldn't go today because I don't have a fucking car and I have a full time job that I'm working from home on right now. So I just don't really have time for it. Um, hopefully tomorrow I'll be able to. And then the other option, like the last option, is basically that the guy at the dealership who was like the boss of the salesperson I was talking to was like, well, he was like, the, kind of the last thing we can do is we can basically like special order you the car that you want from Honda. 
Um, however, it's going to take like eight weeks for it to get built and for it to get here. Totally, because like, they got to fucking make it, right? Yeah, they literally <laughs> have to like make it, you know, to my specifications, which of course is like a great idea because then I would get exactly the car I want, like down to the smallest detail. But I can't wait two months to get a car. So like I realize I'm being really picky and I know a lot of people I'm sure would call me totally unreasonable about this, about, you know, being set on wanting a six shift. I mean, I'm not set on wanting a Honda Fit, but I thought it would be, I thought I would be able to go to the fucking dealership, the Honda dealership and be like, hey, here's what I want. And they'd be like, okay, poof, snap our fingers and it appears right in front of you. But I should have known that life was not going to be this easy. But like at the end of the day, like I said earlier, if I'm going to be spending like in the ballpark of like 20 grand on a car and I will be financing just so we're clear here, I not I don't have $20,000. I will probably never have $20,000 in my bank account as long as I live um, at one time. Um, I want to get what I want to get. And I told the guy at the dealership, like, you know, I told him, I was like, I want to buy this car and I want it to last me the rest of my life. Like, I don't want to buy a new car every five years. I'm not that guy. Like, I want to spend the 20 grand on this car. I want what I want and I want it to last me the rest of my life. And I think it's shitty that I can't get what I want whenever, like, you get on the Honda site and you can, like, look at all these different kinds of cars and all these different trims and, you know, manual, automatic, CVT, everything. But then you go to the dealership and they only have, like, one version of one of the cars and it's not the one you want you know they only had like a couple of automatics on the lot and fits as it was so it's just like i don't know i just i i'm just frustrated and i feel dumb because i feel like i'm being too picky and i feel like i'm being sort of unrealistic but i mean we're talking about spending a lot of money on something that i'm gonna have for a long time so i want the thing that i want and i just it's just like not a good situation like i called my mom last night and i was like how come I never get to shop for a car at my leisure? Like every time I have to buy a car, I'm thrust into a carless situation because I either get in an accident or I get totaled or something. And it's just, uh, it's just not my ideal scenario. And I, I feel like I'm being unreasonable, but at the same time, like this is a big decision and I want to get what I want to get. Well, you bring up many issues here that I want to respond to and hopefully I don't forget to respond to them all. I was trying to keep track <laughs> and I think I'm losing a couple of them. But you have a bulleted list in front of you, I bet. I, I, I meant to write it down and I didn't. <laughs> I, should, I should write it down, bulleted list. But I mean, okay, so number one, the only way that people are truly happy is when they do what they feel like is right and do what they want. When people don't ask for what it is that they truly want, you just end up being unhappy. And I would hate for you to be unhappy over something like a car. Um, you know, secondly, it's a lot of money to buy a car. And you should get the one that you want because if you take good care of it and you don't seem to me like the kind of guy who like changes cars every six months. So it's probably going to, like you said, last you the rest of your life, get exactly the one that you want. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like Honda is selling a product. You want a particular product they should sell it to you. And it seems like they will, except for the problem of the eight weeks wait, which is kind of a problem because, you know, obviously you have to get to work and, you know, have to live, buy groceries, et cetera, et cetera. So I get I get that of like, you know, it's a toss up between eight weeks of like probably, probably fairly significant inconvenience, if not being untenable altogether, uh, since America is such a car culture uh, or getting the thing you want. But I mean, also, I mean, I do think that if you're going to spend that much, you should get something that's going to make you happy. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to look at your car every day when you go out to it. You're going to be like, eh, <laughs> yeah, it's my car. It works, but it's not the one that I wanted. And when you see the one that you want on the road, you're going to be like, damn it, I wish that was my car. You know, you're going to, like, fantasize that it's you driving that other car. You're not going to pay attention. You're going to swerve off the road and kill yourself in a wreck. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible, dude. 
<laughs> you got to get the car that you want. But uh, so I guess my question, one of my biggest questions uh, is, what is the dish the the difference for you between having a manual and an automatic? I realize what the physical difference is, but why are you so f- set on having um, a manual? What is the deal for, with that? Because having a manual transmission car is rad as hell. That's why, Brad. Just because it's fun because you act like you're a race car driver when you drive all over the place? Well, that's not. That's kind of funny because that's not even it. Like, you would maybe think that. But considering I want a goddamn Honda Fit, which is like, I mean, it's not like a minivan, but it's also nothing close to like a sports car. I mean, the Civic Si that I test drove would be like more of a sports type car. Um like, I just like the feeling, well, first of all, from what I've heard and read and, you know, people have told me, manual transmission vehicles are more reliable. They're less likely to have the transmission go out and they're less likely to have, like, you know, hangups or errors or anything. And so that's part of it. Also, back in the day, I remember whenever, uh, you know, I was a young lad and I was 15 and 16 and trying to buy my first car, um, uh, manual transmissions were cheaper because they they aren't, I don't know, is like technical and less people wanted them, I guess. But even though they were more in demand at the time, they were cheaper. And I think that's true of the fits as well. I'm pretty sure if you choose the automatic option, it's like a thousand dollars extra or something like that. Like it's not huge, but it's a little bit more. Um, But I just really like the feeling of driving a stick. And I feel like all of like the bros that I knew growing up, because for the longest time, I drove an automatic from when I was 16 up until I was about 20, maybe like 23 or 25. And whenever I got in my car accident where my car got T-boned, I made the conscious decision to get a five-speed. And I had it was totally radical because I had never driven a five-speed before. I wasn't one of those kids that grew up driving my dad's five-speed and then, you know, settled for an automatic and, you know, had always longed for a five-speed again. I had always driven an automatic. I had never driven a five-speed. But something about it, I just thought, okay, this is my chance. Like, how often am I going to be buying a new car in my life? Like, I kind of want to do something different. And I had my friend Adam at the time. He drove a Honda Civic, which was a stick. He taught me how to drive his. I was terrible at it. But I bought my Honda Fit, and it was a five-speed. And whenever I drove two hours to St. Louis to test drive it, I killed it like eight times during the test drive because I'm an idiot. But I learned to love it. And for there was like a three-month period, an interim period, where I thought, God damn it, what did I get myself into? Why did I want to get a five-speed? I hate my life. I hate this. I, I can't text and drive. It's so hard. Why did I do this to myself? But then after that three-month period, I came to love it. And just having... I don't know, just like more control and you just feel like more skilled and you're driving. I don't know. I mean, part of it is, I mean, most of it is just me like feeling cooler about having one. Like, it's not like I'm some mechanic who, oh, I want to fix up my engine and I know everything about the pistons and whatever, because I don't know shit about cars. I just like the feeling and I don't want to give that up, even if that means, um, you know, settling for something else, because I could go out and buy an automatic Honda Fit today if I wanted one, but I don't want that. I just want, I want a stick. It's silly, but I just, that's what I want. I don't want to turn my back on that. And I know that if I buy this car, I'm going to have it for a long, long time. I mean, fingers crossed, unless something else happens, I'm going to have it for a very long time. And I don't want to get in my car every day and put it in drive and think, God damn it, I wish I were switching through gears right now because I know I'm going to think of that every single time I sit in my car if I get an automatic. And I just want, a manual. I just love the feeling of pushing the clutch in and switching gears and putting it in neutral to coast. And it just feels so good. And I don't, I don't want to be without that. 
Well, you, you like what you like, and you got to do what you got to do. I mean, I guess I, I am not deep in the auto industry. Like, I am a car expert by no means. So, like, whatever I say, just please pretend like <laughs> I just don't know what I'm talking about. But, I mean, I'm sure that automatic transmissions have gotten better. They're more fuel efficient. I'm sure they've improved the technology a lot since then. So I'm guessing that from an engineering standpoint, it probably makes more sense to have an automatic these days. But I do remember those days when an automatic, or I mean, I'm sorry, I keep getting these fucking confused, (laughs) that a manual was cheaper and that honestly, like when I was growing up, people thought that uh, automatics were for girls. Because girls were too stupid to drive cars, and so they couldn't <laughs> oh, shift no. gears. Yeah, that was that. I mean, I don't. That's not what I espouse. I don't believe that at all. But like, that was the common thinking when I was in uh, junior high and high school. It was like girls bought automatics, boys bought manuals, and if you were a guy with a manual, there was something wrong with you. Or I mean, with an automatic. You know what I mean? Fuck, I keep getting these mixed up. <laughs> um, but in, yeah, so like that was how it was back in the day. I, I I think that was stupid. I don't believe that. But that I remember those days pretty well. But, I mean, honestly, so I guess follow-up question, do you still have a motorcycle? I, th- I seem to call you a motorcycle. Did you ever have one, or am I, am I misremembering? It is funny that you bring that up, because I did buy a motorcycle in 2000, what are we, in 2019? I bought it in, like, 2015 or 16 after, um, after moving to uh, Omaha. I bought it in Omaha at the time. Again, much like wanting to buy a stick shift in my car in my Honda Fit, my first one, um, totally off-the-cuff decision for my birthday one year, I decided to buy myself a motorcycle training class. I went, I got my endorsement, I bought a motorcycle about three months after I finished the course, and I had it, and I loved it, And it, but it stopped working on me. Like, the second year I had it in Omaha, a couple things happened with it. And like I said, I'm not um, I'm not a mechanic by any means. I did, however, change the spark plug on it, so I felt really good about that. But um, I couldn't get it to work. And it is funny that you bring that up because literally yesterday, about 26 hours ago, maybe to the dot, I had a guy come out to the house and pick up my motorcycle and take it to go get it fixed. So I should actually have my motorcycle back probably tomorrow night, and it'll be fixed, and it'll be ready to go, and I'm looking forward to riding it again. Um, however, I don't want that to replace a car for me, but I will have that for the first time in a couple of years to hopefully ride um, consistently, you know, if the weather's nice around here. So I'm excited about that. Well, I mean, I think the answer to your situation is clear. I think you need to order the exact car that you want, tell Honda that they need to make it for you, like have them make <laughs> that exact car, and in the meantime, if for the next eight weeks, you just ride your motorcycle back and work, uh, back and forth to work, and you know, you get to have some motorcycle time, use the vehicle, uh, you know, you can get around while you're waiting for the exact vehicle you want. But if you're going to spend that much money on a vehicle that you're probably going to, you know, run into the ground for the rest of your life, I mean, you're going to have it for 15 years minimum if you take good care of it, right? Uh, maybe even longer than that. You should get the exact one you want. So just order the one you want, get your motorcycle out, ride that around while that one, while the car is being made, <laughs> and then the car gets here, you get the exact car you want, and then you're happy. I, this you know, believe it or not, this thought process has crossed, has crossed my mind several times. Um, the only, this is a good plan. The only thing that I worry about this plan is that I, um, I can't ride my motorcycle all the time. So like if it's raining, I can't ride my motorcycle and it rains a lot in new Orleans. So like, (laughs) I guess you wouldn't normally think about this whenever you have a car, but you kind of think about a motorcycle in the sense that you maybe think about a convertible where like, if you're going to take it out, you have to like, plan your entire day for it like you have to 
make sure it's not going to rain, you know, make sure there's no chance of rain, make sure it did not just rain, um, or any other weird weather conditions. Because even if it's like really windy outside, that can also be a deterrent for motorcycles. And also, this is just me being a baby, but I don't like to drive uh, my motorcycle on the highways because it's very small and I'm relatively small and it's scary and I'm a chicken whenever it comes to that. But I could commute to work and back with it, which is the plan here. Um, I'm just hesitant to rely only on my motorcycle for two entire months, although it's not out of the question. Well, just a thought, man. Just a thought. Uh, I mean, either that or you get real good at Uber or maybe, um, I don't know, you learn the bus system or I don't know, <laughs> you get a really good pair of shoes and you just get, you know, you up your jogging game by quite a bit. I mean, I don't know, man, but uh, I guess I guess think about it. And let us know which way you swing. Yeah, I will obviously keep everybody posted. I'm hoping tomorrow I will go to a couple dealerships. Like I said earlier, I did find some used cars that are not fits, but they're things that I think I might want in the area. And hopefully tomorrow I'll go look at them. And honestly, I mean, if I see one of those used cars and I test drive it and I like it, um, I'm really not in a position to dick around right now unless, you know, it's for the only car I want, which would be like a fit. But that's not the only car I want. So... Um, we'll see. I'll go car shopping. I, hopefully, fingers crossed, by next week, I'll be able to come back to the show and say, hey, I have this new car, or I ordered this new car, but we'll see what happens. Uh, this is a trying time in my life, but here we are. Here we are. Well, okay, that was quite a quite a turn of events, quite a story, quite a narrative from start to finish. I don't have anything else to... Uh really contribute to banter i mean uh nothing that's gonna follow that story you got anything else or you think we should uh, move on and talk about games um i'm ready to talk about games if you are my my uh week has been consumed by used car shopping <laughs> so like i haven't really done anything else so i'm ready for games if you are all right let's do it let's talk about some games <laughs> 